in the list of amazingly terrible puns, <laughs> we've got half-baked, yeast-expectant, <laughs> guns in the oven, plan has gone awry. Do you guys agree plan has gone awry wins? Because I, I... I think I'm it's guns of, in the oven. I'm partially yeast-expectant. <laughs> oh, guns in the oven. Beep, what do you think? Tie break it. These are shitty puns. <laughs> They're shitty, and that's why they're good. Amazing! What? This is a podcast. We we have a podcast. Have you never heard of a dad joke? We have a podcast named Wells. Actually, that you came up with the pun. (laughs) I just wanted to set you guys off. I love these puns. Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys rewatch podcast. As a reminder, this is a rewatch podcast. What that means is we spoil and we spoil a lot. If you have not yet seen the entire series, guess what? All four seasons are up on Hulu if you're in the US. If not, oh my gosh, I don't know. I've seen a lot of people complaining that they can't watch it and I'm so sorry, you guys. So we're in the middle of season three right now. We would love for you to come back when you have finished. If you have finished, however, we have a new guest. This is our friend, Sarah. Welcome. Hi. I'm so excited and also nervous. (laughs) No, don't be nervous. This This is is my favorite show on the planet, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just got to, I just watched it for the first time months ago, and it's already, like, up there with The Wire. So. (laughs) Oh, that is, that is, that is, that is good praise. And on topic for today's episode. Yes. Sarah, you give, I think it comes down to you versus Selena Wilkin for the two biggest Ramsey stands on earth. <laughs> I think yeah. I could take her. I think I could take her. <laughs> I think you could. She's really tiny would. and I fight dirty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we meant physically, but okay. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'm serious about this. Like me, yeah. Selena, out back. We'll fight <laughs> it out. This is Beep, by the way, and back there laughing is Cece. Always, always, just always back there with hey the giggling. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sarah, tell us about yourself, where you're recording from, and where people can find you on the old Twitter. All right, I am a writer in San Jose, California, and you can find me on Twitter at Oscar Miked, O S C A R M I K E D. It's a military reference. It's not worth explaining. <laughs> and uh, if anyone, my I live tweeted the show on a different account that's locked now. But if anyone remembers someone named Sarah screaming about 12 monkeys and how the witness was definitely a woman, look at the careful wording. That was me. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. It was su- it's my favorite. Um Twitter flailing. Like, watching people flail about this show on Twitter brings me so much joy. And yours was (laughs) my favorite. But mostly because every other tweet was you. I I had never actually heard this insult before. You wishing that we would all step on Legos. (laughs) Every time time the show made you cry. (laughs) Which was, like, at least once an episode by, like, the end of season one. <laughs> and then I stepped on one of my kids' Legos, and I was like, oh, fuck, <gasps> Did you finally do it? <laughs> you finally stepped on a Lego. Oh, there is so justice much. in the world. 
most of them most of them were very uh polarizing it was like i hate you guys i love you guys i hope you step on like i was like that was the whole one tweet right there i think literally like by the end i was just like screaming i hate you all for doing this to me this is the best show in the universe i love you just one (laughs) sentence like that feels right no punctuation, all <laughs> nothing at all. Probably all caps every time too. Well, what was so fascinating too is like mo- I feel like a lot, uh, even a lot of the people that we've had on the pod, Ramsey's always sort of the lightning rod character, right? Like, oh, I love him, and you love him so much. I and do, you, and you did from the beginning, right? And you told us so. This we have been waiting. Like when we first put this podcast together, <laughs> we're like, well, we know who's doing brothers. <laughs> I, I I do recall running in and screaming, I get brothers, and then being like, does anyone else really care? Because if there's like a definite opinion, I could do a twofer, but I get brothers. Like, it was very determined I was going to be on it. I didn't mind sharing, but I had to be here. <laughs> All right, so you're finally here. Before we jump into the episode, every time we have All a right. new panelist on... We they enter the gauntlet so that folks can know sort of like oh, where yeah where you've come like where you come out at the story. Um, so our first question, Sarah, is why do you love like you just said it's your favorite TV show? Did you say like of all time now? It's up there with Parks and Rec. Oh man, why do you love it so much? Um, there is a long, complicated version of this answer, and I'm going to try to give the short, snappy one <laughs> because. In a TV landscape that the editor just, will thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that is just like littered with shows about how people are crappy and life is crappy and you should just sort of accept the crappy and like nihilistic views of what humanity is capable of. It was really refreshing to see a show that seemed to believe in hope and not just second chances, but fourth and fifth and, you know, thousand and tenth chances. And the acting is great. The writing is great. The music is great. They have dirty dancing references. Like, it fulfills the silly parts of me, and it fulfills the parts of me that are searching for deep meaning. And that's a really hard thing to find in one show. That's true. Yeah. Um, we already we already spilled yeah. the beans, as my kids say, on this question. Uh, tell us why Ramsey is your favorite character. Do you want to know something? It's actually Jennifer. <laughs> yes! I I love Ramsey with all my heart. He is. I find him complicated and compelling and brilliantly written and acted. But I love Jennifer with the kind of love where it's like, if I if I loved her less, I would probably know how to talk about it more. I relate to her on like, oh God, I'm not going to cry before I get through the damn intro. But uh, <laughs> when I was a teenager, um, my parents institutionalized me and it was a really bad situation. And I'm dealing with that now as an adult. And actually 12 Monkeys, seeing Jennifer's arc was the thing that made part of the thing that made me go back into therapy and start dealing with my PTSD, which I've been diagnosed with from living there for years. So it was kind of like Jennifer and this show like unlocked a piece of me that I didn't want to admit was there for like over a decade. So while I love Ramsey, like Jennifer is that character where normally I'm like very contrarian. And when people are like, 
oh, how could this character do that? I am ready with an argument as to why it is understandable, even if it isn't excusable. If someone's mean to Jennifer or someone doesn't listen to Jennifer, I'm immediately like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why aren't you listening to Jennifer? Same. Jennifer's amazing. How dare you disrespect Jennifer? So, like, I lose all sense of, like, proportion and rationality and just any sort of, like, emotional distance with Jennifer. I can't. She's my favorite. That is a, I know you were expecting Ramsey, but Jennifer's, like, the one who's at the core of my heart. But now I want to mom hug you, but you're in California <laughs> and I'm in D.C. Oh, well, we can hug over the air. There, I hugged the air. <laughs> oh, like, I mean, uh, it's like what you, like, that's really powerful. I mean, honestly, I credit this show for like, I didn't want to think to myself, was this circumstance I was put in bad for me? Or because it was supposed to help me. And I was being told by everyone that it helped me. And 12 Monkeys unlocked the part of me that let me question that. So, you know, thanks, Terry, for like breaking my heart and also kind of starting to heal it. Oh, Oh, so that's, I can segue into favorite moment from there because it's, it's Jennifer uh, the scene where she's busting her gang out in hyenas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the thing that frees you to be crazy is knowing you're not. That speech, like, I fist pump and ball at the same time. <laughs> and then there are a million other, like, runner-up favorite moments, because this series is insane, but that one's the one. Do you have a favorite episode? The finale. Like, there are a lot of really good ones, and causality is probably the most fun But the finale is, I mean, it's up there with, like, I would call it almost a perfect episode of television. It's got everything. Mm -hmm. Like, how, I don't understand how they did it, but it's, thank God they did. (laughs) So I think the finale, yeah. Also, then I get to cheat and have two episodes as one. (laughs) Good point. Do you think Cassie stopped the countdown? Okay, you guys have heard my Twitter rant. But what I will say is I think there are two answers to this question. I think my personal answer is less important than, like, it's ambiguous for a reason. If they wanted us to have a concrete answer, did she stop it? Did she not? We would see her stop it or not. So I think it's less about did she absolutely stop it and more about can you almost what the show is trying to tell us. Like, can you see Cassie's weakness? Can you see her doubts and the things that might make her make the wrong choice and still believe in her better angels and believe that Cassandra Rayleigh would never end the world and would never step on the necks of everyone who might want to grow and change and become somebody new. And I think it's almost sort of like, there's no, how do you tell if somebody loves you? There's no test for it. There's no, you don't see a moment. You just have to believe. That being said, Cassandra Rayleigh saved the fucking world. In my house, we respect Cassie and we believe in those better angels. I will fight people to say she saved the world, but also I think it's not the point. (laughs) We just, I have two very extreme takes on this. Does your partner agree with you? How did he come out watching it? He thinks she saved the world because oh. we ta- we actually talked about this. I asked him, uh, for people who don't know me and my boyfriend, uh, I got, we watched the series together after I gulped it down in a, like a, what, a weekend? 
something like that. And uh, we had a big talk about it, and he came down on the side of she saved the world. But his take on it was essentially she wouldn't do that to Cole. That even that, like, their relationship was such that when Cole gives her that speech, she wouldn't want to be happy in this sort of bubble knowing that's not what would make Cole happy. Because when you love somebody, sometimes you have to do things like that. Like the truest expression of love there for Cassie is letting Cole go because that's what he wants. So he came down on that side and he's like an engineer. So it was really funny that he had like the emotional take on it. Oh, but, and I had one. like the mental take, but yeah, that was it. He's like, I don't think she'd do that to Cole. Especially since the reason she would be doing it would be ostensibly for Cole. Right. But honestly, like, and this is sort of a weird interjection, but it's almost sort of like in season one when we have Aaron expressing his real love for Cassie by trying to control her and give her a fate that she doesn't want. So in a way, Cassie is getting Aaron's choice and she's making the right one. In my mind, I would argue she makes the right one. Would you stop the countdown? Absolutely. Like, no question. I don't, no questions asked. I think I tend to come down on the very hard on the coal side of things, not just for like the autonomy circumstances of like, I can't make that choice for the rest of the world. I don't think that's fair. But also just in terms of like, I do think impermanence is part of what makes happiness. Like, everything ends and that's part of what makes it mean anything at all. It's kind of why like vampire fiction has always freaked me out a little because what is morality when you have thousands of years to correct any wrong you ever do? Like what is love? What is happiness? If time doesn't have any meaning and there's no end to anything like that creeps me out. I would stop the countdown. (laughs) I would be tempted, (laughs) but I would stop the countdown because I would worry, what if I'm not sending myself to heaven? What if I'm sending myself to hell and they're just describing it in a way that sounds better? (laughs) Did you have a favorite era for costumes? Oh, boy. It's got to be the 80s. Just for (laughs) Jennifer's, like, cosplay moment. Because you know she's been thinking about those costumes. Like, I feel like Jennifer, just for fun, has, like mentally created outfits for every era just in case they stop there. (laughs) All right. Are we ready to do this episode? Let's do it. Today we are talking about, and I feel like even the title of this episode is like a fucking feels attack. It's so mean. (laughs) Today we're talking about brothers. It was, this is one of those story by Travis Fickett, teleplay by Travis Fickett and Kristen Rydell, and it's directed by Joe Menendez. Uh, Travis Fickett, of course, is the co-creator of the show with Terry Metalis, and Kristen Rydell is, is interesting that she's the writer on this episode for two reasons. The first, I was kind of chuckling that she really enjoys making us cry over people dying in Cole's arms, because she also wrote One Minute More. <laughs> 
it's like it's like the two episodes where we have to just watch Cole deal with somebody dying in his arms. Um, but she also wrote, and this is like what I love continuity wise. She wrote Bodies of Water in season two, which was oh. Jennifer and Olivia face face off and Jennifer seeing the word of the witness for the first time. And obviously all of that is sort of picked up on with them facing each other again for the first time since that. Um, Joe Menendez, he also, this is his first episode for 12 Monkeys. He also directed Legacy, which I think is just a gorgeous episode of TV to look at. Um, I feel like it's one of those, that's one of those episodes where I was like, oh my God, all of a sudden this looks like a huge budget film. And I know they did it with like drones and stuff, but it just looked beautiful. Oh, I have to do a shout out because... My mom is Cuban, and so when I looked up his bio, I saw that he's Cuban-American, and so I'm totally turning into my grandmother, where she would be like, do you know so-and-so's Cuban? Did I update you on Andy Garcia's, like, the last film he did? And I just get excited anytime. <laughs> so yay for that. Um, guys, I have to be honest with you. The last 20 minutes of this episode are some of my favorite minutes of this entire series. Like, from the face-off, at Persephone through the end, it is like between the acting and the music and just the choices they made at different points. It's just like of the all four seasons. Um, Sarah, do you? That's high praise. It, it, like, it, it is, honestly. Yeah, Especially it is. because they have to do the trick of making this meld absolutely seamlessly with the finale. Well, yeah. <laughs> and it I does. Mean, that is, yeah, and it was before I, so I will say that. That's before I ever got to season, like, to the end. Oh, yeah. You know, like, before we found out what the, like, what we will say a lot, the missing page. Even before that, from the moment you have that final face-off all the way through the end with Cassie and Cole at the machine, I'm going to yell a lot. And it's a disclaimer. You can adjust your volume later. (laughs) I love the last 20 minutes of this episode. I mean, I love the whole thing, but but in particular. And a lot of it also is, God, the music in this episode is ridiculous. Um, Before we jump in sort of scene by scene, um, I want to just talk about some big picture stuff. Um, And the first, and I feel like, Sarah, you will also have a lot to say about this. I feel like as much as this episode was a, like, punch in the stomach. It was also, like, for three seasons, we knew it was coming. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, it's sure. the train approaching. You can see it barreling down towards you, and you're just like, but I don't want it to be a train. The train should go away. Yeah. But you and knew it, it was coming. Yeah, and the thing is, it's like you've got these two men who love each other like brothers, and they're always on the opposite side of these one versus the many moral divides and, and and coming down to like like whether it's debating it or whether it's violence right like if we go through all of the face-offs we had like their original fight in season one when Cole had just come back um from from Cassie dying in his arms at the CDC and they had mm-hmm. the argument basically where Ramsey was motivated by his son right and And they both have, you know, larger groups of people that they're trying to save, right? I think it starts earlier than there, just to interject. Like, it starts at Project Spearhead when Ramsey, during the mutiny, has to decide. Split second, no time to think, no time to really sort of logic out, is there a third way here? He has to take Elena and Sam 
get the fuck out. Like, he has to send them, and that all ends up sort of spurring on what actually happens. So I think the tragedy, honestly, of Ramsey's arc is he ends up at these inflection points where he has about two seconds to make a life-altering choice. You know, like when Olivia says, I can bring you to Sam. So he ends up in these places where if he had had some time to think or to get advice, perhaps it could have gone all differently. But he always ends up having like five seconds to make a call. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like you can't, it's totally using the wrong term. It's not Chekhov's like standoff. But like we've had so many standoffs between them. Like you had Shonen where they're in a knife fight. You had the season one finale. You had in season two during um, Resurrection where there was the coup and Cole was unable to pull the trigger. And this is like finally the moment and like the what what is so interesting about it is it turns the tables on the debate that they've been having where now it's Cole's one versus the seven billion, right? And so it's like, we knew it was coming. And even though it like makes me sick to my stomach, there was this feeling of inevitability about it, which is just really, really good writing, right? Where it's like something that you don't want to happen and yet you you can see it coming. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a really hard line to walk um but then it's delivered in a way that you never anticipated right like this is the guy where colt like in season one where he was like it's my son and they turn it all around because now it's about cole's one so it's like in some ways it's like we saw it coming and in other ways the way that it like unfolds is not how i expected Um, oh yeah i i thought it was gonna be over sam like have and having it oh flipping it to be about cole's son is this show is so good at giving you, this is sort of cliche, but it gives you what you need, not what you want or what you expect. And I think this is sort of, I don't think this this confrontation between Cole and Ramsey would have had the same impact without it being flipped in terms of perspective. And I also think Cole needs, needs to have this confrontation with Ramsey in order to go on and sort of grow from where he's at in terms of perspective because he really didn't understand I think why Ramsey's attachment to his son was so sudden and so just all-consuming yeah and I I mean yeah in some ways they all do right like oh yeah it's it's save the one right it's like why we get the ending that we're so happy with at the end you know which is the irony right like I mean and what I think is interesting about it is like I don't think it's so much of like a, a a lot of people both sort of like in the fandom or discussing this show or have come on this podcast who struggle with Ramsey is because they say he's they frame it as selfish, meaning he chooses his loved one mm-hmm. over the over the greater good, how how that how that is defined in kind of a utilitarian way. Right. One yeah. versus versus seven billion people. Right. Um, and. All those people, right, who have had that issue with Ramsey throughout the series, how do they feel during this episode where it's Ramsey saying, okay, one for seven billion, and it's Cole who is not willing to pay that price? Do they have that same anger with Cole or or do they not? Because we as audience members, it's almost like 
it's almost meta. Like, we also love Cassie, so we don't want Cassie to be killed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so we're in Cole, we, we are aligned with Cole's sort of emotional point of view, maybe more than we were with Ramsey with Sam. But like, it's, it's, he, Cole is making the same choice in this episode, right? And like, he and Cassie are going to make that same choice with like trying to save their son later in the season. And so it's like, taking what we a lot of the issues people had with Ramsey in the first two seasons and now they're putting our two main protagonists in those shoes making that choice and like I'm so curious I I, you know this season aired like in one weekend and I ended up watching it like a couple weeks late and so I'm just curious like were people when they watch this like yes, I agree with Ramsey and Cole is wrong or they cut it's a little hypocritical right like they love Cassie and so they're mad at Ramsey that he wants to kill Cassie. It's that I I went back and obviously I watched the series like after the whole thing had aired. But I went back and read some of like the at the time responses. And that was actually something I found really interesting because obviously I really sympathized with that with Ramsey throughout. Like I found, I guess it's like I said earlier, it's the difference between understandable and excusable. I don't have to excuse Ramsey's actions to understand him and like sympathize for the dilemma he feels, especially since, and this is the one thing that did bother me when people are like, well, Ramsey, he's selfish and he's, you know, what he, if time resets, he gets Sam back. He doesn't know that. There's no guarantee that he'll get Sam back. So he, from Ramsey's perspective, he's facing a circumstance where he is being asked, <laughs> The show gets so Catholic sometimes that I just can't stand it in the best way. <laughs> he's getting he's Abra- he's getting the Abraham and Isaac of it all. It's would you sacrifice your son because to save the world in this case? Because he has no promise he'll ever meet Elena outside of the apocalypse. He has no promise he'll have a son. And I think there's sort of a lack of sympathy, not from the narrative, but from the other characters towards Ramsey that... I think the show is purposefully putting Cole in the same situation, both to teach Cole the lesson of one over the many and why, while Ramsey's actions were bad, at his core, his motivation was the correct one, I think the show is trying to say. But also to say to the audience, where where does your morality lie on this? How yeah. is it different when you love someone? Because... It was different for us. I think a lot of the audience, and even I, who love Ramsey to death, Sam is not so much like a character in his own right as like a little boy-shaped MacGuffin, which I don't mind. I don't really need to know Sam's internal life. I'm okay with it. But so we as an audience don't really love Sam. So I think there are people who watch the show and because they don't personally love Sam, they can't extend Ramsey sort of the emotional, you know, charity to understand that he loves Sam so much, be even not knowing him, that the yeah. idea of having Sam matters so much to him. And I think the show's really good at sort of asking the audience those sort of questions without coming down on a definitive, this is how you should feel, but they're always sort of pushing us like, it's a, uh, I had a philosophy teacher once who would ask us really tough questions and his method of pushing was to say, okay, what if it happened to your aunt? What if it happened to your mother? What if it happened to your, you? And force people to get really realistic with the idea of sacrifice 
and sort of, and often they were, you know, the sort of questions of like, would you kill someone to save the world? And it, I think it's always easy to sit back and say, well, I would do this. I would do that. I would do the other. But for example, like, like I say, I like, I think I would turn off the switch. I would shut down the machine. I don't know. I don't know. Cause I've never been there. I don't know what I would do for sure. And I think the show is very, very good at approaching tough situations with that sort of charitable mindset of, you know, I don't know. I've never been there. Yeah. So Beep, you are someone that when we've had Ramsey debates have sort of fallen on that line of being like, it was wrong. Not, I mean, understandable, but not like necessarily agreeing with his actions mostly in season one with respect to his son versus the seven billion. What about this scene? What, I mean, what, what about what happens in this episode? It's Cole on that side of the one and Ramsey's on the side of seven billion. Yeah. I mean, for me, as far as the, the Ramsey debate, it's less about his um, stance on one versus seven billion and more about the fact that he like systematically spent 30 years fucking people over like, you know what I mean? He didn't make a decision earlier to just be like, I'm going to kill this one person. And to, to me, like, just personally, you just don't come back from that. He's he's always like, I know he has done good things for them along the way, but I just feel like ever, you know, ever since that happened and he spent that time with the monkeys in, in 87 after stabbing Cole, like, he's just always been more of an antagonist than, than on Team Splinter. And so I just have never trusted him again. Um... I understand how the narrative has has flipped it and, you know, there is more investment on the Cole and Cassie side. So, like, we're kind of having that same thought process. It's definitely easier to get invested in them, though, because it's less about the child. Like, we don't know their kid either. It's not that he particularly means something to us, but, like, we saw that occur. They got together, they fell in love, and, like, they had this child. And so that means something to us. Um, So I think that you know, Ethan versus Sam is just a little bit different from a from a viewer perspective. Um, of course, it's the same argument, for sure. I understand his motivation. It's just seriously like that systematic, prolonged, like, essentially, oh, yeah, like, that's... torture of your friends. Like, that's the part that I could never get over. Although, you want to know for me why I'm okay? Like, what he does is terrible. The reason I'm okay with it is because I feel like Ramsey hates himself. That everything he's doing, he has to constantly, like, almost like a mantra, I'm doing it for the right reasons. I'm doing it for the right reasons. If I never create time travel, Cole can never time travel. I'm doing it for the right reasons. I'm doing it for Sam. I'm doing it for whatever. And for me, the fact that you get a Ramsey who, by this episode, I feel like, I feel like he almost wants to die. That he's so sick of who he's become and what he's been, what he feels like he had to do. I personally think there was, as he says, you're never in Atari. Um, but I think for me, I'm able to forgive Ramsey more because he's, it feels to me like he's not okay with what he's done either. And if he had been remorseless, instead of sort of reflexively defensive, I think I would have felt differently about it. But for me, his degree of like what I think is remorse, even in the moment, changes 
the way I am willing to forgive him in the future. Yeah. Well, even even at this part, I mean, he he's obviously conflicted. There's always that that issue. I just it's hard for me to ever know where he stands. And in this in this particular episode, you know, which is like all the underhandedness and like even last like coming in with Olivia like to start that all again, you know, and just the I don't know, even the sneakery. I don't even know what word I want to use. Like, that no, just doesn't yeah. sit well oh, with totally. me. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, but that's also a moral wrinkle, right? Like, I mean, I think there's two wrinkles to this one versus the many dilemma, right? The first is he keeps it a secret. Yep. He takes away everybody else's agency in solving the problem, right? And you can definitely, you can say in part, it's because he knows he needs to do that because there's no way Cole's going to let him do it. I'm sure there's also a part of him that it, that it is true that he's trying to protect Cole from this horrible choice, right? Like, he knows what this kind of choice does to your soul, right? Um, but also, Cassie is not culpable. Like, this isn't the pro, this is a little bit different from the one versus the many dilemma they set up in the pilot, kill Leland Goins. Right? They believed Leland Goins was culpable. Or even the moral dilemma later in the season where they believe that even though child Ethan hasn't done something wrong, he will. Right? So then it's a matter of like, do you kill someone who's going to be culpable but hasn't been culpable yeah. yet cassie hasn't done any it, it, to, to the Cass- contrary yeah she'll never but this is like yeah. this is killing hitler's mom yeah right. so <laughs> you know what i mean it's a step beyond do you yeah. kill baby hitler do you kill baby hitler not just do you kill baby hitler's mom exactly oh my god it's totally yes that's what it is right and i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna get a little bit more into this later and this is totally a subjective read thing but the way I read Ramsey through the episode is like, especially, and I think the only way you could ever get Ramsey to this point is killing Sam with his bare hands. I think yeah. literally doing that flipped a switch inside Ramsey where he is, it's almost like he's a wounded animal. Like he has the sun, it, it's sort of like asking, asking Cassie, to end the world, a woman who has only ever wanted to heal people. Like, this is the child he did all these horrific, disgusting things for, these things that clearly didn't even sit well with Ramsey, even believing in their necessi- their necessity, rather. And he just killed him. It's all for nothing. And Olivia has manipulated him into believe, into accepting this sort of immediate answer of like the thing that makes this better the thing that makes any of this worth it now that I've done this is to get rid of the witness by any cost but then he spends the whole episode I would argue basically begging Cole to stop him almost like Jennifer in the bar when she has the uh, briefcase with the virus in season two I I feel like Ramsey this entire episode doesn't want to do anything he's doing but is so in the dark and so unable to see anything but that dark that it's like he's it's almost like Ramsey's out to lunch like the real Ramsey is popping up in sort of the truth via lie dialogue and the rest of him is sheer wounded animal just lashing out, hoping to find the thing that'll fix his pain. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, there's 
Well, we're, we're gonna get we're gonna get into it in their dialogue. But yeah, there's a lot of they are not always they're not like themselves with each other. It's almost like they're playing roles with each other, and it's and they're always awful. telling the truth by lies. It's yes, yes, right. And so that's the thing. So there's there's so many layers of understanding this episode in a different way as to how many times you've watched it and when. So the first and I think is. Like, like, you can find a million different, like, because, and I think that's the beautiful thing, honestly, about the way they've written this episode. A lot of it is subjective, especially considering the ending. Literally, right. you read Kirk's acting differently, depending on the, the amount of information you have about what will happen in the future. I think it's it's genius that so much of this is subjective. Right. Okay, so there, there's that whole layer to it, right? Um, that 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 you would go back, let's say you're at the end of season three and you'd go back and rewatch it and you'd be like, oh man, like you can totally see how Cole knew what was up the whole time, right? So when we, um, on sort of the rewatch, when we have these episodes where it's like Cassie dying at the CDC or <laughs> like these ones where it's like, we thought we knew what was going on, but we didn't. Um, I kind of went through and watched this episode and then went back and watched the finale and then went back and watched 307 because there's a yep. Jones piece to this. So what is really incredible to do that I just want, like, I'm sure it's obvious to listeners anyway, but watch this episode. When you get to, like, the second foot stepping on a branch in the woods <laughs> towards the end. And kind of like see Ramsey kind of poking out to see where Cole is. Stop. Go to the beginning, part one. <laughs> yep. Go to the part where Cole, where Cassie tells Cole, well, what if there was a page missing? And he goes and future asshole goes back, snags Ramsey, brings him, and they have that scene where they're fighting and then they do the goodwill hunting, hug it out. And then and then Ramsey immediately says he's sorry. If you want to just go through the whole thing, you can watch all their scenes together, but then definitely watch their farewell at the time machine in the second part of the series finale. Then go back to the rest of Brothers and it will fucking blow your mind. It's unbelievable. I actually watch Brothers that way now. Every time I rewatch Brothers, I have to, because I've pinpointed the exact moment where Ramsey becomes future Ramsey. Mm -hmm. So I stop right before he comes future Ramsey. I go to the finale and I watch... So, like, I'll watch usually his opening scene and then the goodbye scene. Mm -hmm. And then I'll finish Brothers. Yes. And then the added piece that you need, the way Jones finds out the central thing about who she thinks the witness is, again, it kind of echoes, nobody tells her, nobody trusts yep. her, right? She is is hiding and witnessing this fight between the two of them and watches Cole kill oh, Ramsey. And that's heart. how she finds out that Ethan is what they think is the witness. And that's how she finds out that Cole killed Ramsey. She's there watching. So that's the other piece from 307. If you want to just add in, like, yep. 
Jones is there, like, hiding in the bushes. I mean, so then the other thing, too, in, in sort of, the, that's sort of what we'll call the missing page, as Cassie said it. The, the puzzle from above part that we'll get into are Jennifer's drawings of the dying man that preview the season three finale. So there's just like incredible stuff to dig into. Um, one of the other sort of big themes that that's like a thread that runs through everything is sort of a, something the pallid man says, secrets are delicate and tenuous. This is the season that secrets divide our beloved teen splinter. There, they this these were as like a very wise writers room that did not extend that kind of strife into season four. Um, <laughs> we all watch other shows where it seems like that's all the drama. That's all the drama comes from. Um, but in this episode, everybody has secrets from one another, right? Like Olivia has secrets from the team. Cole has secrets from Ramsey. Ramsey has a huge secret from Cole. Cassie is withholding things from Deacon. Malik is lying to the pallid man. And then the episode ends with Cassie and Cole having a big secret in the middle of their like emotional reunion from everybody else. And so it's just like, it's that one quote from the pallid man. And I'm like, man, that is like the thesis statement of this episode and going into sort of like the rest of the season. I wanted to add on to that. Everybody, all the characters are also sort of lying to themselves at different points. And uh, I, I, so I already mentioned The Wire, which is also up there on my favorite shows of all time. And there's an amazing scene uh, set in prison where a reading group is analyzing The Great Gatsby. And one of the lead characters, essentially, and I'm, would be quite racist for me to recreate this in the vernacular. So I will just sum up. Um, Essentially, he says, the problem with Gatsby isn't Daisy. The problem with Gatsby isn't anything external. The problem with Gatsby is Gatsby. The problem is he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know. He's lying to himself. He's telling himself a story about who he wants to be. And until he gets real with what actually happened to him, he'll always, he'll never be, he'll always be lying to himself. And it sort of reminded me that like I had said something in my live tweet about how Ramsey's superpower is cutting through the bullshit and just getting right to the heart of the actual problem or the matter at hand. And he loses that along the way. Like Ramsey was sort of the guy who was able to, cut to the heart of things in a way that is Deacon cannot do because Deacon's kind of an asshole whenever he does it. God love him. (laughs) But I think what's really interesting too is Jones and Ramsey are kind of narrative twins when you think about it. They have the same motivations. They actually do the same thing. They help create time travel to get themselves their kid back. And later, the moment that really sets the team on the right course and makes them a family again is when I'll, when they all start to argue, Jones standing up and saying, I have cancer. Like, I'm going to die. We need to get our shit together. We need to be a family. We need to start telling the truth. And it's just, that's another thing I love about this show is like, the secrets doom them. Keeping these things inside, keeping it from themselves and each other is what is making everything fucked up. It's the reason they can't solve, you know, the riddle yet. Mm -hmm. Because, and also it comes back to like later, this is a little bit later, but, you know, 
Jones disrespecting Jennifer's visions and not really seeing the purpose to them, they're not all sort of coming together in the way they should. And it's, it all comes down to secrets. It all comes down to lies. So I love that sort of in the middle of the belly of the whale section, we get a whole episode about the damage of secrets and what it does to relationships to keep these things inside. And also, you know, the search to stop the end of the world, but let's talk about the meta. Right, yeah. Um, The other thing is, before I realized sort of the twisty, turny time, the way everything at the end is altered by the series finale, um, this episode to me always stood out as a little bit distinct from other 12 Monkeys episodes. In that, you mentioned The Wire, um, and I absolutely love like i totally see that parallel and i love the wire it's the it's the specifically just the avon and stringer stuff and since i don't want to really go into that i'll I'll quickly just say avon and stringer on the wire the episode where they betray each other this episode feels like a spiritual successor to that in the most complimentary way i can mean it yeah it's like so and you so you point out the wire the thing about this episode and it's not just because it takes place in New Jersey. <laughs> and it's not just because there's people with guns running in the woods with snow. But it reminded me of some of my most favorite episodes of The Sopranos. And those are episodes, whether it was Big Pussy or Adriana, Long Term Parking is like an episode of TV that still haunts me every time yep. I drive by Newark Airport. Um, they are episodes of TV that essentially boiled down to a hit, right? It's like a hit on someone that you were personally close to and it's a betrayal. And you as the audience, you sit there the whole time with this like increasing feeling of dread and you know someone's gonna die, (laughs) but you're not quite sure who and you're not quite sure if it's the person that they're like setting out to kill or it's gonna be the person that's setting out to kill them. You're not quite sure like how it's gonna, but you know by the end something really terrible is gonna happen. And that's what this episode, before we ever knew about the reconciliation and everything that was actually going on at the end, at least from Ramsey's point of view, that this episode, and I don't mean that, and I just want to be clear, I don't mean that like in a copycat or even an homage kind of way at all. I mean it in like, it reminded me of some of those best episodes of what I think are two of the best series of TV of all time. Like you pointed out The Wire and The Sopranos, and I know... I don't know, maybe it's not as popular nowadays to say you like The Sopranos, like particularly among women, but I still love that show. Oh, so, I do like, too. <laughs> so, um, and, and then also specifically when I was watching it the first time, two guys running in the woods, not knowing what the fuck's going on in the snow with guns reminds me of the Pine Barrens episode. That was like the Steve Buscemi, you know, where the Russian ran off into the woods and you never knew what happened next. And there was part of that. I was like, oh my God, this is like when they're chasing after the Russian. So, that's that's the only time I've ever had Sopranos feels watching 12 Monkeys. This episode, like, I don't know, just hit me kind of a different way. And it's kind of like it's an episode about a hit, right? I, and, like, oh, heisting yeah. trucks and stealing weapons in New Jersey. It just feels very, like... It's also, it's sort of fitting. Like, Ramsey and Cole are, I would argue, the second great love story of mm. 12 Monkeys, now, I, I ship it, obviously, because I'm, uh, obviously, but also just in terms of, like, the 
the brother's relationship purely platonically without the fanfic I would like to write and read. Shout out to anyone who wants to write me some. <laughs> um, it's This relationship has been so important and so central to not only who Cole is, but like who the show is, I guess. What the show is, but who the show feels more appropriate for some reason, despite the grammar issues. <laughs> it to send Ramsey off for so long, because we do see him in a few flashbacks before the finale, or time travel moments, rather. But he's essentially gone from the series for another season and a half now. You need something epic to send him off. You need something that feels worthy of the emotional sacrifice that Cole is making. So I think it's really appropriate that you get a whole episode to build up to this moment, especially like you said, after we've had three, se- two and a half seasons rather of building, building, building to this clear, it has to come to a head. They finally have to have sort of the battle royale, the final thing. I think you need an episode of TV this epic to really get across how much it matters to the series and to Cole as a character. Yeah. Like, this is, there's no going back from this point in what turns out to be a good way. I think actually Cole has to give up Ramsey in this way to become the Cole who can someday bring Ramsey back and forgive him immediately. But it's also like you, and that was, oh, I was going to say that's even, so I think the thing that's so amazing about this episode is up until the point where future Ramsey comes back and we get Cole shooting him and the end. It is the first episode. Like Ramsey is in that space. So even if the end takes place in another space we won't understand later, we get that episode of cuz I don't think I I I kind of wondered this to myself rewatching the episode, would I have liked it as much if say Ramsey had known the whole episode? Like, Cole gets him earlier, and he right. goes through the episode no, knowing what's good. And I would have hated right. that. It's, yeah, I would have hated Rams- it. Ramsey goes through. I mean, that's what makes the reconciliation that we know is going on. Has and happened. also, if Ramsey yeah. hadn't killed that innocent woman, uh, I don't yeah. think he would have been in as ready a place to admit that he had completely fucked up and taken the wrong path. I think it's another, it's sort of a the moment of like these terrible things allow him to become the Ramsey who will be able to, once Cole hugs him, break down and say, I'm sorry. I'm, I was so wrong. I'm sorry. Right. I know. Right. I mean, the other crazy thing is when you rewatch this episode, it didn't hit me. Even though I've gone back and watched pieces and I've watched this, I love this, I've watched it a ton, but what really hit me is, the. I, this is going to sound obvious, but like the Ramsey in the series finale is this Ramsey yep. from like a few minutes ago where they're <laughs> like holding guns to one another and like earlier that day was conspiring with Olivia and had just spent a freaking year with her traveling cross country and then like a few seconds later, he's sitting there in a room with Cole, and Cole's like, yeah, so Olivia's the witness. Like, what a mindfuck for Ramsey, right? Like, and he's he's sitting there when he's dying, and he's the person who knows kind of the earliest that Olivia's the witness, and he can't say anything. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, he yep. sure knows. Like, we don't know what Cassie at the CDC in season one knew, but this Ramsey for sure knows it all. Like, yep. except except that Cole won't actually be erased. He knows it all. So, oh my God, we're like an hour in. We need to go <laughs> quickly to 2044 and 2147. So 2044... Jennifer can't sleep. She's worried about her friends. We see sort of her dreams. She sees the dying man. She sees what we now know is Eliza's tomb. And then she wakes up and she's camped out in the chair. And Adler is not happy with it. (laughs) At all. Adler, you don't need the chair. Relax. Let her take a nap where she wants to. Oh, my God. I love, I love (laughs) that Adler is like this distinct Oh, I love it. I totally love it. And Jennifer pisses him off so (laughs) much. And then she calls him C-3PO, which is like the most amazing, like, she quotes Star Wars and Ghostbusters, like. Like in this episode, it's phenomenal. Um, she goes to she goes. This is sort of the p- part of the episode that's really fun. Now that we know what all of these drawings mean and, and these phrases, so Jennifer sits down to draw because she can't sleep in the Situation Room. She draws the serpent eating its tail. She's saying six oh seven. She says, "Climb the steps, ring the bell." Which he hasn't said since season one, but obviously we know that it's very this important. This goddamn show. Right? <laughs> she says, the she mentions the Guardians and then the dying man. And then Jones comes in and is like, this is not, like, Jones is so mad. This is not a zoo. That's my chair. <laughs> Jennifer's put her drawings all over the, like, sacred evidence board. And what I love is Jones is so mad when none of the shit that she has up on that bulletin board actually matters. And Jennifer's drawings are the evidence that they need for like the puzzle, like to put it all together. When will people learn? I said this when I live tweeted, Jennifer Goins is never lying and she is always helping. It might take you a few hours to translate it, but she is never lying, always helping. Right. Um, the thing now that like hit me even the second time that I watched this is when Jones holds up, Jones zeroes in on the drawing of the dying man. And she's like, who is this? And you're like, um, that's your great grandson. And the reason why he's dying is because you shoot him <laughs> in the season three finale. And that just hit me as like, that was fantastic foreshadowing that like, there's no way you would have figured that out. It's so great. Everything Um, is right there in this show, and it makes me angry. (laughs) Like, in that, like, faux angry, how dare you be so good at your jobs way. (laughs) The other um, fun, the next sort of vision that that Jennifer has is, and the first time you watch it, I interpret it as her fear, and also the audience fear, about who could potentially end up dead by the end of this episode, even though you you know James Cole isn't going to die at the end of this episode, right? But, like, she sees the dying man, and the dying man morphs into Cassie and then morphs into Cole. And I took that the first time I watched as sort of, like, the stakes of this episode of what Jennifer's concerned about. What is brilliant about it is that is who the dying man will go back and save in the series finale, right? Those are the two lives at stake, when Jennifer saves Ethan, because he has to, I mean, Jones too, but he has well, to Well, it's also who it is. I was it's, about to say, it's, it's also- the combination of them. He's yeah. the product of that, of Cole and Cassie. So it's an- Right. I like Part of them is dying. Of like, I like how they're 
that sort of functions as like a visual interpretation of the way Jennifer's visions are imprecise and sort of depend upon you having the bird's eye view. Because that is Jennifer's brain saying, who is the man? Well, he is a combination of Cole and Cassie. But until you have that information, how in the world could you expect her to just come up with that or anyone at all? It's a really clever visual mode of showing sort of how confusing and and imprecisely conveyed her insights are. And they do, they do a really good job of this in this episode of showing... Uh, kind of again, even though she's kind of, you know, straightened everything out and she's all part of the team, like, this is, it's a burden. This is not, you know, everyone else is like, you're annoying and you do stuff and it's like, yeah, and I wish I didn't, you know what I mean? I wish I didn't have these problems. Jennifer's visions and everything else as sort of an allegory for burdens of mental illness is next level and it's another one of those if i knew if i loved it less i know i know how to talk about it more basically (laughs) you feel me man yeah i mean it's also you know we've obviously seen her drawings before but this season in particular between both jennifer and ethan and watching how that burden unfolds right like watching child ethan drawing make I can't help but think, you know, this is what Jennifer, we saw the drawings in her childhood room, but it makes you think about like all of these primaries and that burden, right? And when they were children and what the world thought about them, what their parents thought about them, having these images in your head, sometimes violent, disturbing, upsetting images as a child in your head and not knowing how to make sense of them, even as an adult. The burden is just like sometimes it's just like... So I love how this season, I feel like in particular, delves into that, right? I like totally having agree. these images flashing in your head and like, what do you do with that? And, th- and through Child Ethan, we kind of, you can, you know, when you watch those scenes of him drawing from being like, you know, a nine-year-old boy into like young adulthood, it, it kind of gives you that window and you can imagine what it was like for all of these other primaries that we've met along the way, you know, where we've met most of them as adults, except for Cho- chorus who we'll meet like in season four. Um, that brings can I us add one to- thing real quick yeah. to that? I was going to say, it. I really like how Jennifer's progression of the way she's using her powers and interpreting her visions and sort of, you do see this very sort of, like, because we know with old Jennifer that she's, the powers have receded a bit, but that she learned through time and practice and age to become less confused by them and be able to sort through the noise. And we get from this episode to the point where she's seeing the visions of the versions of herself. And I like how we we get this year sort of the rise of Jennifer's hero arc. And it's, well, yeah, because now she's not dismissing it as nonsense or crazy. She wants to figure it out. Yep. Who's this mm-hmm. dying man? Right? Like, it, it's, she's, she doesn't yeah. know what it means, but she knows that it's important. And so she's trying to figure it out. And it's, it, and that before is this, a, people have forced her not to run from the visions. This is the first season where it's her choice to start going down the rabbit hole. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um. All right. So Kristen Rydell wrote this episode the last time Jennifer and Olivia were face to face, as Olivia says it, 
I got in your head, but you literally got under my skin. It was when Jennifer stabbed her and left her in the bottom of the pool. And it's crazy when you think about, like, Olivia lived for decades. And now she is, like, with that memory and what that did to her physically. And now, for Jennifer, it's been, what, like, a year or two? For Olivia, it's been decades. And they are now face-to-face for the first time since that. Tell me your feelings about this, because this face off, not only does it mine that Bodies of Water episode and their history in season one, but, you know, like when they're sitting face to face, it now makes me think of Jennifer luring her her and Titan, right, to Raritan in the finale. Like, so it's just this amazing step along the way in this Jennifer Olivia mini play (laughs) that goes on within the series. It almost feels like the midpoint, because in the beginning, Olivia's playing Jennifer, Mm-hmm. At this sort of sort of point, it almost trades back and forth who's playing who. And then by the end, Jennifer is playing Olivia like a goddamn fiddle. But Olivia's still playing her. Oh, that's you know, what I mean. In like, this yeah. scene, I think it's back and forth. Like by the yeah. finale, she plays Olivia. But oh, I mean but at this point, abs- yes, it's absolutely. it's sort of like half and half. It's it's almost like literally the midway point. Right. What? So we we ended up talking about enemy for two different podcasts, and and like reveling in Olivia being in control of everyone and kind of this Hannibal Lecter thing. What I love is that as well as this show did that in the last episode, you have Jennifer walk in saying, "Please stop talking like a supervillain." Yes. <laughs> so self-aware that you can laugh at it right like you can in the last episode be like oh fuck she's playing all of them and like we're screwed and then the next episode you have jennifer like put the pinprick in that balloon and being like please stop talking like a supervillain i love it so much i always (laughs) tell people that this show takes itself the exact right amount of seriously yes because it doesn't take itself too seriously but it also takes itself just seriously enough Seriously enough for us to fully appreciate and be scared of Olivia as an antagonist, but not too seriously that they don't recognize that they totally also did Hannibal Lecter her. Oh, yeah. And it's also like, I love that they sort of textualize by the end that the thing that drives Olivia at the end of the day is fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of being alone, fear of change, fear of not being in control. So I love especially that even in this moment where she, she Jennifer's right, she's where she wants to be. Yeah. You can see even taking away that little bit of control is rattling Olivia because she sort of slips in and out of arrogance in the scenes they have together. It's the acting. I like, I don't even know where to begin with Jennifer and Olivia's scenes like all the time, but especially in this episode. Yeah. When they're face to face and just staring at each other. (laughs) There's so much going on. Like, right. And there's so many layers to it and it's riveting. And the acting is, I mean, this I feel like this episode is like an Emmy tape for like four different actors. Oh, <laughs> like it's, it's, it's so good. <laughs> I was uh, when Jennifer like the thing I love about Emily is when you're playing the crazy one, there's really a tendency to go kind of over the top or sort of 
lean into the wounded bird stuff, especially in genre TV to the point where it's like, I've seen the same three crazy characters on a million different shows. Jennifer. I've never seen Jennifer. There's something feral about her. The way she like inhales sometimes before a line and almost like her laugh is that sort of uncontrolled burst. And like, I I just, I could go on about Jennifer's line delivery literally just all day. Yeah, I mean, beep, that goes to the line that goes to your point um, we were talking about in the last pod about how at this point in the story, Jennifer is the only one who can see through Olivia's bullshit is she points out, look, the last time I saw you, you were lying face down in an empty pool with a stab wound. And I'm supposed to believe that three months in a dark room broke you? No. <laughs> you know, like yeah. everyone else, including us. We, I bought it. I bought <laughs> it. Olivia, yeah. And she's like, no. Um, the thing also is that Olivia's, but here I am locked up. I was locked up once, not by choice. And it kind of returns to this. They had that wonderful scene in season one when Jennifer was at the monkey mansion and Olivia was brushing her hair and talked about being, you know, daughters in boxes. And this kind of, they do have this parallel horror of in different ways being girls that were locked up by their fathers but like jennifer is not buying it anymore (laughs) you know right olivia's trying to press those old buttons there is emotional truth to it jennifer is not buying literally as she puts it the bullshit that olivia is selling in these scenes yeah i think olivia is actually a bit put off by like how much jennifer has changed I agree. And how she's not able to just push those buttons anymore because she used to just, you know, Jennifer was just her little puppet. And now Jennifer's like, I'm not listening to one fucking word you're saying. How about that? She thinks she still knows how to play Jennifer. And I like that you can kind of see her adjusting in the moment. Like, oh, this isn't, I was supposed to be able to just waltz in and fuck with her head. That didn't work. Let's try something else. I told you guys I was going to yell, how dare you, Terry, at one point. (laughs) <laughs> how fucking dare you terry because on the table? <laughs> i did i literally pounded on my desk because okay jennifer says to olivia you've never been anywhere you didn't want to be he just fucking told us olivia is the real witness wait so be- explain that to me okay how? if olivia has never been anywhere she didn't want to be And she was in the box because the witness wanted her in the box. She's the fucking witness. Because (laughs) if she didn't want to, if she's never been anywhere she didn't want to be, she had to want to be in the box. But that, her child self didn't want to be in the box. Ergo, her adult self wanted her in the fucking box and she's the witness. Like, literally, it's logic problem neat. If A, then B. If Olivia's never wanted, never been anywhere she didn't want to be, she wanted to be in the box. No, you mean like literally mean, it just means the cycle. (laughs) And like, it also is like I, the meta, like deep fucked up statement that they are making by Olivia keeping herself in the box on a show that's so much about like trauma and the ways in which we perpetuate it in ourselves that is both deep as shit and like a how fucking dare you Terry moment. Like he told us she's the witness and until you know she's the fucking witness, 
you're never going to use that to figure out she's the witness, and yet it is right there. Right in front of our faces. I I never thought about it that way. It's a literal statement, because it's, I always, when I rewatch the show, I always keep in mind, Jennifer, always helping, never lying. So if you find, if you listen to Jennifer, it's, that was kind of how I sort of, like, I think I started figuring out some of the twists, or at least, if not figuring out them in totality, where they were going, is I tried to watch the show like Jennifer would. I tried to, like, step above and look into parallels and think, what's related to that? What am I seeing on a global scale? Yeah. I mean, that's why I uh, I was convinced the woman was, uh, the witness had to be a woman. Because we're never actually shown any gendered characteristics for the witness. But everyone keeps calling the witness a man. And on a show that is so careful and precise in its language and a show that's got a shit ton of feminist theory going on in the background to have the figure of ultimate power be a woman and have all these people assume that this figure of power must be a man is like, they don't have to do anything but just put in that subtle touch. And it makes such a deep fucking statement like i get mad about how good it is that olivia is the witness it's like that um dr riddle you know the one i'm um do you know what i'm talking about i don't think so the sun is there's a car accident do you guys oh that one yeah yeah yeah. i know what you're talking about do you know the one i mean that it's like there's a car accident there's a father and son yeah yeah the surgeon says but i can't operate on my son and how's that possible yeah everyone's assumption is because the woman, because the surgeon's a man mm-hmm. and that it couldn't be the mother, that riddle. It's like, that's what they did for like three seasons. Exactly. And <laughs> I think it's all also, assumed, yeah. and it's yeah. like, literally that was the only reason was I started thinking like Jennifer. And I noticed that despite the fact that we get the witness referred to as him, even by people who've never seen the witness, yeah. I was like, wait, uh-uh. This feels like it's doing something like very clever and I'm going to go with it. <laughs> I, yeah. I, and also just, I wasn't having it be Olivia, man. She kept herself in the box. Yeah, it's, I know. Well, so to go to that, one of the other, that is one of my favorite lines in the whole series is your spirit <laughs> animal is a turducken. Yep. <laughs> it's just like, that is, there are some incredible layers there once you know, like, not oh. only, like, she doesn't even know how much it is, right? Yeah, Jennifer, um, never lying, always helping. The, so the part that I think is interesting is, like, Jennifer is turning this, she is, you know, she's not quite seeking guidance from Olivia, but it's like, she just wants to see what what information can I get from her that will be helpful to this dying man vision right and so she jennifer plays on this adopted mother dynamic of i'm having trouble sleeping i want you to tell me a story that makes the nightmares that go away which is such a phenomenal fuck you to like and the way she manipulation the way olivia smiles at that i know she's so delighted and that is jennifer is not falling for that shit but what I loved, the line um, when Olivia begins to lose it a little bit and they're kind of like face to face and Olivia is seething, Olivia says, not everyone gets to be primary. The rest of us are doomed to juggle eventualities. And that is such a wonderful preview now 
of her early season for struggle when she's the witness, but she's not primary and she's going to have to figure out another way to see what Jennifer sees. Right. Like, and, oh, yeah. and he also gives you a window into sort of like this frustration of Olivia has always been someone who's been bothered when things go off script. Right. Like, Pallid Man was chill with things that were not foreseen happening in season two, like Olivia was not. So it's kind of like both mining this past character trait insecurity Olivia's had, but also previewing like how that is going to manifest when she is a very not confident witness who doesn't have primary powers. So she needs to figure out what has to happen, but she doesn't have the actual like, like natural talent to be able to do it. And that culminates with what is great is it pivots from a vision of the dying man to the word of the witness, which is the document we will later find out he authored. And then it's setting up causality, obviously, like in the next episode. So that let's go to 2147 quickly. Right. Um, and then we, we had that wonderful reunion between Deacon and Cassie in the last episode. But now it's, is Cole with you? Oh. Nope. Just me. It just oh. hurts my Deacon, chest. Deacon oh. just wants to be special to somebody. He is forever getting shit on. Like, oh. he just can't catch a break. He just wants to be fucking special to somebody. This, this is so integral to his arc, though. Yeah, I know. This episode, right? That moment and the moment at the end when oh, nobody man. gives a shit that he's back. Right? Like, oh, it hurts my chest. Yeah, and then him finding out, like, he's not on the word and all that stuff. I mean, it all just starts to play into the fact that Olivia thinks that he can be, you know, turned and that other people, you know, it just, I don't know. It's good. Each little thing. It's so, yeah. The thing that I love, I love two things about Deacon and Cassie breaking out of Titan together. First, of course, it's always a team. Of course, there's always a group effort. But nobody fucking saves Cassandra Rayleigh. She helps save herself. Amen. She is not a damsel in distress. Like, right? Like, and it's not to say, like, you guys know that I'm the biggest fucking romantic around. So, like, it wasn't like it ended season two and you saw Cole getting back in the chair and I wasn't yelling, like, go (laughs) save her. Like, of course I was. But I love that, like, I love that she is an active participant. And by that, I mean slicing people's throats (laughs) to get the hell out of Titan. And that she is like side by side fighting her way out of there. And I also love that the whole way that Deacon and Cassie first bonded in, in early season two was him teaching her how to use a knife. He's the one who taught her to fight. He's the one that like trained that like physical, like survival side of her. And then they side by side fight each other, like fight their way out. And it is amazing. Like for whatever their ups and downs in season two, it was like, I love that moment. It is so perfect. Not only for her to like save herself, but also for the two of them and sort of their story and how in some ways Deacon is Cassie's mentor when it comes to that like physical strength that side of her that can you know take out seven acolytes on your way out i totally agree it's and sort of sidebar about cassie and deacon i think more than almost any other show i've seen on tv except for maybe harlots this show understands the complexity of love and the complexity of relationships where deacon matters to cassie they bonded 
when they were in the future together. He helped her. He was, like you said, he mentored her in how to stay alive, physically speaking. Just because she's not in love with him, just because she ends up with Cole, it doesn't mean what they shared is less important. And it doesn't mean that that wasn't part of what led her to being with Cole in the end. Not in a bad way, but in the way of every person we meet and everything we go through with those people turn us into a sum total of those experiences. So the Cassie being with Deacon, I mean, sleeping with him once, but more just like being with him, getting to build that relationship is part of who what turns her into the Cassie who later on has a little bit more perspective, has, is a little bit more willing to do violence is, you know, has a window into the world that helps her understand Cole better. Mm -hmm. And it, that's why I like, I think at the end, it's so important that we get that moment in the finale with Cassie and Deacon, because like I said, the show understands every relationship is important and it also doesn't prize romantic relationships over platonic ones in a way that right, a lot yeah. of shows do. Like, Deacon matters to Cassie just right. as much as Cole does, just in a different way. And it's no less important or less valid. It's just different. And I think the show's really good at giving balance to that kind of thing. Yeah, you don't... I mean, it does... It, right, Deacon's not the one. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that Cassie doesn't care about him and he's important to her in those ways that you just described. It also is not – so I think that you could, although I will be quite honest, I'm trying to now think of a show and I can't. I think you can present that kind of being magnanimous that you're not going to have hard feelings and it doesn't even come – it comes across as an ideal rather than as real – realistic if that makes sense i totally the, agree this there are mo right you have the moment at th- when they're reunited and she asks about cole you see that hurt on deacon's face like they're still human say, beings that's you know what the i mean part like that matters you get yeah deacon is allowed to be hurt but it's also the way they handle it is most shows cassie would be like a bitch who broke deacon's heart and how dare she lead him on or how dare or, she not yeah. feel the same way or, or Deacon is the asshole. Oh, yeah. That, right? Like, you can play it either way. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. And I, I like that both of their emotional perspectives are given weight. And Cassie's not a villain. And Deacon's not a villain. They're two people who want very different things, but still care yeah. about each other. Honestly, I think that's part of why the tragedy of Ramsey and Cole works so much for me is I always believe at the end of the day, these are men who love each other. They, they, they love each other so much that that's the real connective tissue. And even as they're hurting each other, and even as they're doing things that put each other at cross purposes, the love doesn't go away. And I think that's, that's Cassie and Deacon. That's Cole and Ramsey. That's everybody and everybody on this show well yeah and there's a you know there's an emotional truth on both sides you know the last time that they were having a conversation was in season two with it was just one night yeah you came to me there's there's uh, both of those statements are true yep right and and are adult and 
one hurts and one is just being like, why are you asking this of me? Right? Like, so, I mean, all of it, it's just really. It's messy and complicated and real. Like, it's real and it's adult and it's just fucking refreshing. Because oh, no. there's just not a ton of that on TV. Oh, no. So. Like, the way they handle relationships on this show is, it is very hard to see a show that balances how you can love somebody and be mad at them. And even at those points where the anger is the dominant emotion, even in a relationship where it turns out that the anger is such or the hurt is such that you can't be the same, the love is still there. And I really like, especially like the the metaphor of the missing page is really just something that really resonates with me of stories aren't over unless the people in the stories want them to be over. You can always come back and try to pick up the story again, so long as you're both willing to do it. Yeah. And there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah. Um, uh, we have, as they leave, like the thing that now when you watch, that now I'm like, man, how did I not see this show? Like, <laughs> is when when they're breaking out and Cassie's, Deacon's like, you know, the guy uh, we honor time with patience, dude. And Cassie's like, yeah, I fucking know that guy. And you're like, yeah, because this is his plan right like he's been like manip like doing what he needs to do showing cassie her baby right giving her the motivation to go after ethan nursing deacon to be able to be the one to like you know get like make it seem like he's the mechanism getting her out of there right and then he says find your son and we now know how key that choice of words not save your son find your son like now we know what that's all about the precision (laughs) of language on this show is next fucking level like what i love about these deacon and cassie scenes are we see once they're walking through sort of those like those beautiful shots where they're walking through the heather and all of that you start to see returning to that thread that runs through the episode regardless of who is talking to one another that thread of secrets so when Deacon says, why were we locked up for so long? And Cassie says, it doesn't matter now. And Deacon says, what the hell happened to you? It is a deliberate choice that Cassie chooses not to confide in Deacon. Yep. She was pregnant and had a child and that child was taken away. Now, she hasn't even had a chance to tell Cole of the child's existence. Like, I get it. And in the next episode, it's going to be Cole telling her we can't tell everyone. But it's the beginning of these divides in our team um, over the the presence of Ethan. Um, Another kind of scene like that is when Deacon says, I should have slit the witness's throat. And you see Cassie flinch. And you're just like, so, you know, they haven't been reunited yet, but they are sowing the seeds for what this is going to be like. We're about to get a big epic reunion. But guys, there are troubled times ahead for our team (laughs) over Ethan. You know what? Okay, so obviously the huge thing that you don't, that seems catastrophic, but you don't understand what it means is when Deacon and Cassie walk up over the hill and Raritan is destroyed. And now we know it's because Jones moved it (laughs) in 401 and everything's fine and that's what they wanted to happen. But at the time, I remember being like, oh God, there's some like, 
epic battle coming where everything gets destroyed, which is there is an epic battle coming, but like they're going to get out of it. Um, and that's Project Sharon. And they're sitting earlier in 2044 and she's moved the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> which is like, what's really interesting is the way like, there's so much that happens in like season three that feels like the belly of the whale moment from sort of, or the hero in the cave from the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Because it's sort of like in order... I personally think Cole has to give up Ramsey at this point. And I, I do see what happens as giving up Ramsey because he has the tools to bring Ramsey back. I think losing Ramsey this way and letting him stay dead is in some ways Cole learning about sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a a preparation in in the same way that thinking that Raritan has been destroyed puts a little, you know, boost to the giddy up for how serious everything is. And it's sort of interesting that all these terrible things kind of end up being what teaches them the lessons or spurs them to become the people in season four who are so much more on the ball and honest with each other. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, Cassandra Rayleigh does not take that shit sitting down. She's like, Ugh. this can't be how it ends. I'm going to start digging by hand through rubble. <laughs> You're never like- in Atari. I'm just uh, saying the yeah. Ramsey cassie sort of echoes of the way that Cole told Cassie in the beginning, you remind me of Ramsey. I think this is one of those echoes of like, and that's how we know that this Ramsey is like not his real, I guess you could say, self or his best self, he's giving up. He believes he has no other options, whereas Cassie now has picked up the mantle of fuck no, there is always another way. Yeah, and then Deacon sees ah, like (laughs) I'm like, sees the butterfly in the wall, which we know from the next end of the next episode, Cassie painted it there. And she and Cole together are the ones that buried what they need to get back home. It is so, we have spun out previously on this, not every caterpillar becomes a butterfly and all of the ways that that continually, it's part of Cassie's journey and how she constantly is changing. This Cassie she know first of all it's a message to her to herself she knows that means home home meaning lots of different things right a person a place she's physically trying to get back to raritan but she's trying to get back to cole that butterfly is the symbol of their home that now doesn't exist in 1957 together christmas when he gave her the hairpin right and they show us that that with like the editing that flashback but It also, to me, like that symbol of the butterfly, like Cassie in season three, in some ways, switches positions with Cole. Like she's when she's like, this can't be how it ends. She is the character that is not willing to give up. Right. She's not willing to give up that Raritan's destroyed and they can't get back to their friends and continue the mission. She's not going to be willing to give up on her son. And this is like, this is a different Cassandra Rayleigh than we saw in season one. It's a different Cassandra Rayleigh than we saw at the beginning of season two. You know, like this is a woman who's fallen in love, has found happiness, has lost that person, has had her child ripped away from her and yet chooses not to give up. And 
Like, uh, I just love her so much. I love that that's her symbol. And I love, again, she's saving herself. That's the symbol she painted on the wall. Of course she does it with Cole. Just like, of course she gets out of Titan with Deacon. I, I, I am not like a... It has to be the woman doing it alone. I just don't think that's realistic. I just love that it's like she's always an active participant in saving herself. I think it, and too, it's also like, it's sort of like Jennifer teaching herself the wave. We find out Jennifer's signature wave was something that, you know, Egg learned from Chicken way long ago. It's, I like how the butterfly could have been a symbol of Cole and Cassie's relationship. And I think. It sort of is. And on a lesser show, it would just be the symbol of that. But I think it's not because of the fact that Cassie leaves the butterfly for herself as a reminder. It's the symbol of Cassie. And it's in sort of the way of Ramsey passing the mantle of the one who finds another way to Cole. And then to then Cole passes that to Cassie. It's we are we all make our own choices. On some level, at the end of the day, you are alone in your own head and you make the ultimate call. But that doesn't mean you have to be alone while making the call. And I like how this show is sort of the idea of like, whenever one character is faltering and experiencing extreme weakness, there will always be another one of the characters they care about to have a moment of strength and to yeah. be there for them. And to, so when Ramsey is at his darkest, we get Cassie emerging in the narrative as the voice of hope and stubborn resistance and almost like hope as the only form of radical protest in the face of misery and overwhelming odds. The only truly radical thing to do is believe that you can do something about it anyway. And it's the hardest thing to do, you know? Like, emotionally speaking, when you're faced with something that seems insurmountable, it's so hard to retain the feelings of, no, fuck it, I can do it. And I think that's part of what makes the characters, like, contained in the bubble special, but also the show special, is you always get a character who is going to shoulder the burden for both the other characters and I think for the audience because we end up living it with them. Yeah, I mean, everyone steps up, but nobody can do it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what I think is interesting is that like we opened this whole motif, this theme of not every caterpillar becomes a butterfly was first introduced at the beginning of season two and Cassie was saying it rather like... Bleakly. Bleakly, it was a sign right? of hopelessness. Yeah. And now this is an episode where we see Cole. I mean, I think in some ways this episode is one of one of his lowest points in the series. Oh, I actually think it might be his absolute lowest. Like, yes, this this and the next two episodes, I think, until he actually sees his son. Yeah. Kind of the trough. In Cole's arc, it is like the peak of his self-loathing. He's yep. killed his brother. He believes his son is the one who ends the world. And all, and that, that com- that's because of him. And yeah, who he and that is. And when he passed on his DNA, right? Like, uh, it just brings up all of that self-hatred, which is kind of the reason why he went on this whole journey to begin with. And so I think it's interesting that, like, we kicked off season two. And for Cassie, not every caterpillar becomes a butterfly was bleak. Now it is a symbol of 
she refuses to give up even in the face of the I mean they showed up in that place as a rubble and they're years away in the future like I think I probably would have just like sat down and cried like, I'm so- crying listening to you talk about this show like seriously <laughs> the show's oh god so I love that it's now she's claiming it and, and she's the one who put it on the wall and that's at a scene where she's going to tell Cole when he's at a low point that he she puts that watch on his wrist and she's like, oh. as long as you have this, right? Like, she is the one now who is the we don't give up, we find another way. That's who Cole was at the beginning of last season. And so and Cole learned places. to be that from Ramsey. The and way – And Cassie. Oh, the but show. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean know. in terms of like the – the I, I and I was going to – like I agree that – but in terms of like I love the way sort of the narrative has the Cole who meets Cassie in the first place needed Ramsey to create – to turn him – to make him, shape him into the sort of person who would agree to do – go on the mission it, in the first place knowing – or assuming he would be erased, and then the kind of person that would attract Cassie. But then Cassie teaches Cole to be the kind of person who could save Ramsay when Ramsay is destined to die. And then Ramsay tells Cassie in the bar, you need to forgive him. Hate me, forgive him. And it's this cycle like of the three of them doing good deeds for each other and leading each other to places where they can be there for the next person almost in this endless cycle. And it's like narratively, you can pinpoint these moments where Ramsey gives Cole something he needs to help Cassie. And then Cassie gives, you know, to the point where Cassie's the one who gives Ramsey back to Cole. Cole would never have done this. He never would have asked for any to have Ramsey back. Right? She calls him family. Maybe mm-hmm. friends and family, right? And it's yeah. like, that's the way in which the three of them sort of create this loop of family is so beautiful. And also, so, like, they should have a threesome, but it's also beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've mentioned fic twice. You have no idea how restrained this has been. <laughs> I've, read, I've read some of your fic, and it's really good. All right, so... <sighs> All right, I think we have to go to the brothers portion of this episode. Shit. Yeah, we do. All right. So, let's start with the flashbacks because of course they fucking give us flashbacks of these two as boys. Uh, in the why? episode like that they're going to shoot each other. Like they just know how it hurt, how to make it hurt. And And also, I think Again, you need to make it matter. Like, Cole and Ramsey have been at odds for so long. We need to see them at their most loving, I think. To really remember why this is going to hurt Cole so much. And I think one of the the things that they do, the actor who plays Cole, we haven't seen him since Paradox in season one, where we watched him meet Ramsey for the first time. Yep. And in two episodes, that actor's going to play young Ethan. That was such a good choice. It's such, such a good a, choice. It's so good because it's like having the same actor. I think it I think we probably would have been invested and we are so intrigued with who this who Ethan is, right? But having it be a familiar face and somebody that we already empathize with as this lost boy. Right. This boy who doesn't have parents, this boy who is in this like 
without like he's not where he's he's not with the family that he's supposed to be. He is not in a situation that a child is supposed to be, whether it is young Cole in an apocalypse, post apocalypse without parents and being raised by somebody who's barely another like, child, another child. Right. Or whether it's Ethan and he has been stolen from his parents and Sebastian is really the only person who like has his in some best interest and in heart best interests at heart right and so you have this like visual like connection between young cole and young ethan that i think at least uh, when i look back at it i'm like it's why we are both horrified what he does in the tent and yet also i think empathetic to him in a way that if it had just been a random like different boy you know like oh totally so- and i think I think the other thing that's very clever is they change the styling enough and the fact that young Cole is dirty, you know, and and wearing very different clothes. Because I think it would have thrown the audience out a little if they were nakedly identical. Yeah. But having the styling change so much and the fact that dirty young Cole in the woods is older than the last time you've seen young Cole. Mm-hmm. So there's enough gap between the version of young Cole that was most prevalent in my mind, which was Paradox Cole and Ethan, that I didn't immediately go young Cole Ethan. So the episode opens with these two boys running in the woods and it's play. And obviously the episode's going to close with it being two men chasing each other and it's lethal it is there's so much symbolism and meaning so the place where cole rushed in like he always does and ramsey saved him like he always does and it's the first first place time that ramsey called him brother that Mm -hmm. cole felt that cole has reverence for he remembers the place ramsey doesn't you know, this is a seminal moment in Cole's life where Ramsey called him his brother. And, and as Cole says, and I loved you for it. You know, it's like quite quite an emotional. I mean, even to have two men expressing themselves in this kind of way is not not always like common on TV. But it's like this place is oh. sacred and they're setting up the origin story. We see the food bank sign and, you know, it's this tragic full circle of men trying to do the right thing the wrong way. And they end up back in the same place and it ends tragically. It's also sort of the tragic inversion of in when they're playing in the woods, it's the usual setup, like you said, of, you know, sort of Cole rushing in half cocked zero plan and Ramsey sort of being like, God damn it. And rushing after because I guess if Cole's in, fuck it, fine. He's doing it too. And this is the one time where it's Ramsey rushing in and Cole running after him, begging him to think and begging him to stop and just take a second to breathe before he sets something off that they can't stop. It's so, and it's like, just in terms of like, I think the word tragedy gets thrown around in sort of an imprecise way sometimes. An actual tragedy has a definition. It's a story about sort of essentially the in the incoming train or the oncoming train. It's people acting in ways that are, you know, 
unwise, rash, terrible, but they're acting in their own interests. They're acting to their own purposes. And unfortunately, the tragedy can't be averted because these purposes are against each other. Like that's the true, that is true tragedy. This moment really could not be avoided without both of them entirely changing like being willing, Cole being willing to hold Ramsey and Ramsey being willing to say, I'm sorry, they will eventually get there. But the tragedy is because of the men they are in this moment before Ramsey is future Ramsey, they are headed for that collision. And the inevitability is what makes it tragedy. Tragedy isn't just sadness or bad things happening. That's not what that word means, narratively speaking. Mm -hmm. And I think 12 Monkeys, especially when it comes to the saga of Cole and Ramsey up until this point, is it is a classic Shakespearean tragedy in the classic narrative sense. These are two people who are set at cross purposes and cannot help themselves from coming against each other despite the love they share like there's it's just it's perfect because it is so tragic like literally it's just tragic there's no other word for it it's perfect yeah all right so we're gonna go to the first conversation at emerson hotel sarah i'm gonna say a couple lines yes and then just go Um, all right because they're lines that hit you like a freaking anvil on rewatch. Oh, God. Cole, this whole thing could be a trap. <laughs> Ramsey describing Olivia, when everything's been taken from you, dot, dot, dot. <sighs> but all the time you spent with Olivia, you would know if this was a setup. <laughs> Just go. <laughs> Oh, God. Everything about this makes me want to stab myself in the face. No. Like, I just... (laughs) All right, so start start with Cole. This whole thing could be a trap. this, This is, for me, some of the most heartbreaking material and... In the whole series, from a writing, st- I'm start crying from a writing standpoint and from an acting standpoint, because what you have are these two men who love each other more than life itself, who are each begging the other one to stop. Because if you look at Cole, he's constantly saying, "This could be a trap." Hey, is this a trap? Is this a trap? And I don't think he's talking about Olivia. I think he understands that this is Ramsey's plan from the very beginning. Like, I don't even, I think there's a part of him that probably wants to blame Olivia, but I don't think he thinks Olivia's setting a trap. I think specifically everything he says is about Ramsey. And when he says to him, what's the exact line? It's she was with them. All her life, shit, they're the reason she is in, has a life. Mm. Why would she betray them? Mm. He's saying to Ramsey, you're the reason I'm alive. I would have, like, it's the fact that we see the flashback where Ramsey saves his life and then calls him brother for the first time. You, he's saying to him, I owe my life to you. Like, you were my brother, my parent, you know, my everything for so long. How could you do this to me? 
And Ramsey, I feel like Ramsey is simultaneously saying, stop me, stop me, stop me, stop me. Please, God, won't you stop me? And also sort of giving himself an out and sort of everything he says about Olivia is him making excuses for himself in this first scene. Yeah. And the excuses stop by the end and it just breaks my fucking heart. Yeah. Like, I mean, thank God we have fun with baking puns. I know. I I, I was going to say though, like the way they balance this and they do this overall, like the fact that causality is the one that's after this, after the most heartbreaking episode of the series to date, we get the funniest caper episode. Like they understand at a certain point, it's almost sadism and like ma- and audience masochism on shows. Like it is. It's misery porn. It's it's it's, 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 yeah. it's trauma porn. It's trauma porn. And I yeah. I get sick of watching shows and feeling like I've been beaten with sticks emotionally by the end of it. And Twelve Monkeys understands that like they need to give you a reason to keep watching and a reason to keep loving the show. Right. And, and enjoying the show. Exactly. Like you you have to they always give us moments to remember this is why you love these characters. This is why you want the best for them. And the thing is, the reason why that it's not only a respite, it also maintains our investment. Yeah. So that it rings out the maximum amount of, like, for lack of a better word, tears at the end of this episode. Right? Because this whole fucking Stealing guns from, I mean, how fantastic is it that they're like, they're sticking it to De- the father of Deacon's Otero, like right hand man, right? So it's like season one, season one, Colin Ramsey, let's stick it to Deacon. And then like, we have fun with them. One last heist, one last, as far as we know, one last heist, one last team up. And they remind us, this is why you love these two. And that's what makes it hurt even oh, more yeah. at the end of and, this episode. And on a character note, too, it's sort of like they're not in harmony at any other point in the episode, except for here. And except it's when like they're joking around about bread. But you and it's <laughs> you can almost see them like it's in a way of like there are people in your life who you've known for long enough where you have these patterns where you can just fall back into them immediately. Like you haven't seen each other in seven years mm-hmm. and you you meet up at a party or a reunion and it's like no time has passed you are despite being different people with different lives the part of you that belonged to them and the part of them that belonged to you is somehow still there still existing and it's like this perfect realistic moment it's sort of like I always uh, one of my ironically favorite moments of the show is in the finale where Cassie makes fun of Cole for finally having a plan for the first time in his life. (laughs) Because that's how real people are. Even when shit is serious with people, you know, and love and are comfortable with and have these jokes with and have these patterns with, even when shit's serious, that comes out. And I love that it's this moment of like Cole and Ramsey are in harmony and it's almost like they're so relieved to not be at cross purposes, to finally have a goal in common 
that for a moment they are their former selves. And then as soon as the heist is over, you see them pulling apart again and they lose that harmony. They lose that sense of connection. And it's narratively speaking, it, it serves those purposes of reminding us and giving us a reason to love them and remember why the friendship mattered to us after so long of them butting heads, you know, that it also on a character standpoint, that is how real people who spend their lives together, that's how they are. That's yeah. how patterns work right. for be- for good and for ill. And sort of, oh my God, God the, way they, the way they work themes in an episode, because that's what's happening with Jennifer and Olivia on the bad side of things. Mm-hmm. Ramsey and Cole are sliding back into better times, and Olivia and Jennifer have moments of sliding back into worse times with Jennifer crawling out and becoming the better version of herself and not letting Olivia get to her like she did and Ramsey crawling down and away from Cole and into the darkness instead of embracing their connection. In the list of amazingly terrible puns, we've got half-baked, yeast-expectant, <laughs> guns in the oven, plan has gone awry. Do you guys agree plan has gone awry wins because I, I I think I'm it's had, guns in the oven I'm partially yeast expect it <laughs> oh guns in the oven beep what do you think tie break it these are shitty puns <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's the point they're <laughs> shitty and that's why they're good they're amazing what this is a podcast we we have a podcast have you well- never heard of a dad joke we have a named Wells actually that you came up with the fun <laughs> I just wanted to set you guys off uh, I love that these puns hey hey guys yes so in the next scene here's what he says when he says he went to go see his mom this is what he says to Cole I never saw her just being close enough all, to almost see her face that was good enough for me like and this is totally subjective. So, like, I'm not saying I'm right. Like, I this is just my read on it. And like I said, I think some of this comes from me being so prepped to, like, feel for Ramsey. I think in the moment, he... And now I'm not saying he doesn't... How to put it? Because he clearly... He, he... I don't think he wants to kill Cassie. He wants it to be over. And I... I I almost see Ramsey in this point as like being passively suicidal. He's disgusted with himself. He's disgusted with the things he's done. He's heartbroken because now he's lost his son and Cole, he thinks. So he's lost everything. And I think in that moment, he knows shooting Cassie is wrong. That is not the right move because old Ramsey never would have done that. The Ramsey of season one would not have done that. And I think, and this is, again, sort of a thing of like subconscious motivation. He can't look her in the eyes because he knows it's wrong and he doesn't want to do it. And he's almost sort of raking himself over the coals for it in the next scene when he says, I never saw her just being close enough to almost see her face was good enough for me. Mm -hmm. He's textually saying, I couldn't look her in the fucking face while I shot her. Which doesn't make it okay. It actually makes it worse. Like I never thought of that line having that double meaning. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, like, and I, I, I think if that is a thought, it's a subconscious one. Like, he thinks, I'm going to get Cassie. But I, I think subconsciously, because he knows it's wrong, he both can't look her in the eye and needs to get it over with so fast that he doesn't even check to make sure it's her. Right. Which is sort of a sign of how off the fucking deep end he is at this point. Well, and the thing is, is when you go back, I mean, with this particular conversation when he comes back and he's yeah. been missing and and even if you don't know the end of the episode, you know that Cole, he's like, you know, you were gone for hours. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Um, the way this all unfolds, Cole knew he couldn't trust Ramsey. Yeah. Ramsey's missteps or trying to draw Cassie out by using Cole. And what I think is so, oh, what makes it hurt even more is that in season one, Ramsey was the guy on the rooftop giving Cole exactly that kind of advice, right? Carve this out for yourself. Go for it. You know, you should, you should try. And then Cole would go back to our present and, and, that's when he would reach out personally to Cassie and be more like off mission. It was because Ramsey was the guy back on the rooftop telling him. Urging him to make a connection. Right. And so now it is both natural that Ramsey would be doing that. And yet that is the moment when Cole is able to discern what specifically what Ramsey. Oh yeah. I don't think he knew like, Oh yeah. If I said earlier, I think he always knew. I think he always knew Ramsey was betraying him. I don't think until this moment he knew it was Cassie. Right. There is a ridiculously, what I think is an incredibly subtle callback, and it's, I just noticed this, this rewatch, and I've seen this episode a good two dozen times, probably. (laughs) So, Ramsey, his answer to where the hell have you been, it's been ours, which I think in some ways this sort of functions as a meta conversation about Cole and Ramsey's relationship. Like where the fuck have you been? Mm. It's been three seasons. <laughs> Ramsey says there was this other guy. I started chasing after him. We got into a scuffle. He gets loose. I got lost. You know, shit happens. I got, and then Cole says that was hours ago. And he says, just says again, I got lost. That's essentially a metaphor for Ramsey's whole arc. Mm-hmm. I got lost. And the, if you remember in season one, Cole tells Cassie uh, sort of the parable of the wolf you feed. Oh, Aaron, Marker, but yeah, the two wolves, right? Yeah, Ramsey said, uh, he said, Ramsey said to him, everybody's got two wolves inside of them. Both are, both of them are starving. One wolf is anger, envy, pride, the other truth, kindness. Every day they tear them, tear each other apart, but it's not the better wolf that wins. It's the one you feed. Ramsey says... There was this other guy, I started chasing after him, and we got in a scuffle. He gets loose, I get lost. He Mm. fed the wolf he shouldn't have fed. Like, I feel like that's sort of a callback to, especially get with the whole, I started chasing after him and we fought and he got loose. The wolf that wins is the wolf you feed. I just get mad at this. That break. The thing about that really hurt. Like, I really do feel like Rams. We've seen Ramsey lie pretty fucking convincingly before. Oh, I mean, he he, is not. He struggles. He struggles in this episode. He He doesn't sell a single thing. Everything he says is like not convincing Mm -hmm. to the point where, again, I and this is 
coming down on the side of reading into things as a Ramsey stan, I feel like it's sort of like Jennifer in the bar. Please stop me. Won't you stop me? Please. I am giving you everything. I am telling you the truth through my lie. Won't you stop me? Which Cole, I mean, so then the trust. And Cole is, is doing the same fucking thing. Right? And Cole gives him. Ramsey gives Cole the chances. Cole gives Ramsey the chances. But because they're feeding the wrong wolf, they're feeding pride at this point. Cole is too proud to say to Ramsey and too angry, I know what you're going to do. I know you're going to betray me. Why would you do this? And Ramsey is too angry and sad and determined to kill the witness to say, because it's Cassie is the witness's mother. You're the witness's father. Like they're feeding the wrong wolf and they're begging each other in code. But because they're each feeding the wrong fucking wolf, neither of them can be strong for the other. Right. I mean, so then you've got Ramsey holding this photograph, the 1944 photograph, which means so much to us. He says to Cole, you might not get a second opportunity to see Cassie. And he's like, I mean, on one level. Like, that is not a good thing to say. That is like. Well, no, but on one level, it makes sense. They have no idea where she is, right? On the other level, it's because he's about to kill her. It's specific vague, okay? It's Ramsey doing to Cole what (laughs) Terry does to us, and it's just as mean. So we have, um, but then the thing about it is, just like season one, Cole will take that advice. Yep. He he will go find Cassie, like, after he loses his brother. And it's what he needs. Yeah. And the thing is, is, like, even if you read it as Ramsey is by how awkwardly he's selling these lies, right? Like, we have seen Ramsey be a much better manipulator in the past. We saw him get to Deacon in early season two. We can see him command things. Whether it's whether it's he's begging Cole to stop him, whether it's Cole's his Achilles heel. I think it's both. That, right, and that's why he can't do it. Cole, he thinks he's setting the trap for Cole to lure out Cassie. Cole mm-hmm. is setting the trap or the, as he puts it, of the last chance. Yeah. That place where he first called him his brother. Which takes us to the conversation in the car. This is the conversation that is painful. Like, in its double meaning. Because neither of them are... There is both a level of sincerity and truth to it. Even while at the same time, neither of them are being truthful. It's, so Cole uh, says just, so it's just like old times. Cole says, you sure you want to do this? Ramsey, <laughs> it's the only way. It's about time we set things straight. And Cole says, see you on the other side. And it's just <laughs> like, and then they shake hands. Ugh. And it, it means uh, like Cole being like, are you sure that you want to go and kill Cassie and betray me? Because I'm going to have to fucking stop you. Right? And Ramsey doesn't know that Cole knows that. And what Ramsey's telling Cole is the reason why I'm going to kill Cassie is because it's the only way. You know? Like, it's this just is, like, ah. This <laughs> is, like, a weird... This is a really weird analogy, but go with me. I kind of feel like this is the conversation version of a lottery scratch card. To the point where Cole's... Cole's pretty sure Rams, like, all it's going to take now is this last piece of actual evidence catching him in the act. He's pretty sure that Ramsey's betraying him. And I go back and forth. 
on whether I think Ramsey knows Cole knows. I think deep down he does, but I don't think in the same way that he's processing anything in a real conscious, aware way. I think he's not really thinking about it on that level. But they're both in this emotional moment of like, they've scratched off everything but the last number. And they're going to lose. There's no way they're going to win. Everything is a loss. There's no combination that makes this come up a win. But as long as you don't scratch off that last number, there's still the pretend possibility that things could get better. So it's like this moment of like suspended animation of hope and trying to pretend the obvious thing that's going to happen isn't going to happen. And it's like, I know the scratch card is a weird metaphor, but that's the only way I can think of it, of like that feeling of like, I know this is not a win for me. I know I'm going to lose this one. But as long as I don't pull off that last Band-Aid, you know, everything will be fine, maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's a million dollars. Who knows? Oh, so we go to the food bank. You've got the really clever editing with Cassie (sighs) as first year season one Cassie in the ponytail. And she's a first year resident. And like, oh, I was fooled by this, by the way. Totally fooled. I was too. They're so good at editing. Yeah, like, it is undersung real- hero on the show. Yes, the editors are unsung heroes on this show. Absolutely. So Ramsey goes to the door. It's locked. And then begins the scene that makes me want to throw shut for these two men not being nominated mm. for Emmys. Because as good as their chemistry has always been, the next 20 minutes to me are like next level acting. And you Oh, yeah. This thing. is like... This is pay for it to go see on some ridiculously expensive Broadway stage level acting. Cole, she's not coming. (laughs) And when did you know? I knew the second you showed up with Olivia. Uh, And then this scene, I mean, the, the exchange of dialogue. But I wanted to believe you. I always want to believe. And you always let me down. So before we get to Ramsey's response to that. It is true from Cole's perspective. He has given Ramsey like 80,000 chances in this series, like going all the way back to season one. And I'm talking about from Cole's perspective. Oh, yeah, totally. Right. Like and to think that this man who he called his brother is standing in the place that is like sacred to Cole because that's where he felt bonded to him as family and he is standing there to kill the woman that Cole loves after all the chances that Cole has given him after all the times that Cole stood up for Ramsey to the rest of the team when they questioned his sincerity when they questioned his allegiance and it all the chances he even gave him in this episode and he's standing there to kill Cassie it's just like makes me want to throw shit like on Cole's behalf do you know what I mean? But then oh, no, it, shifts, exactly. it shifts to Ramsey. I always let you down. And then you see it from his perspective. And it's like Cole has chosen against Ramsey's son since season one. Even then, Ramsey still helped Cole throughout season two, even though it would mean that Ramsey's son would be erased. Cole didn't fucking tell him about 1957. He didn't tell him that he got together with Cassie. He didn't tell him that they were pregnant. He and Now it turns out that his son is the fucking witness that did all of this. Like, it's the most loaded And each man is saying, like, their emotional truth out loud. And they're both right. 
and yet they're both wrong and it it like physically hurts <laughs> it's so uh. like i'm probably going to end up referencing this again later but there's a bible verse uh that just this episode i can't every time i see this episode it reminds me of it it's um i'm trying it's i don't remember the Zach first, but it's from Matthew. And uh, the verse is, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. So essentially, like, Catholicism has a lot of baggage about redemption and forgiveness. And one of the things that I the reason I still consider myself nominally Catholic while having many problems with the earthly church (laughs) is because I find something beautiful about universal forgiveness. The idea that you have to forgive others, their sins against you, against the world to be worthy of forgiveness the way forgiveness functions on this show is so meaningful to me, especially with Cole and Ramsey, because Ramsey has done Cole wrong and Cole has done Ramsey wrong. They both have completely valid reasons to never want to do anything with each other again, to never to want to abandon this friendship and relationship. They've hurt each other in some would say unforgivable ways, but because they love each other and because the Ramsey and Cole that will save the world together are able to be better and to look at the world in a more forgiving, compassionate way. They're able to find the missing page. They're able to complete the story because that's what missing implies, that it's unfinished, that if they hadn't done this, their story wouldn't have been complete. And it's just something about the way... Like I said, it's like radical hope, radical forgiveness in the face of violence. And that doesn't mean you have to let people who hurt you back in if they don't want to stop hurting you. But it's forgiveness as something you do for yourself versus something you do for other people has always been something that's wrong really true to me. And I think this show, whether or not it's a conscious thing, really hits that note of like, to give grace to yourself is to give grace to others. Cole, a Cole who cannot forgive Ramsey could not forgive himself. And it's just, I don't know, it's beautiful and I get very teary-eyed about it. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I mean that forgiving yourself, uh, it, it picks up on their conversation when he sees that past version of Ramsey in Ouroboros in season yep. four. Um, but I mean, you also, you know, we know how, now that we've seen the whole story, We know that no matter how angry these two men are, not only in words, but in they both shoot each other. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like it comes to. That's more than a punch in the face. Right. Within second, whether it's Cole at the end of this sobbing and calling him brother or Ramsey in that room plucked out of this timeline or or yeah, plucked out of this time back with Cole sobbing and saying i'm sorry that that's that's within minutes of this exchange do you know what i mean like and so regardless of the anger and and from both of their perspectives that justifiable hurt and disappointment and anger at one another 
the love that they still bear for one another is right under the surface. Yeah. Because minutes later, we're going to see from Cole's side how much he mourns his brother and how, you know, it's like a it's like a limb has been ripped off of him. And moments later, even though we're going to have to wait a season and a half, we're going to see Ramsey sobbing and saying, I'm sorry. Right? That's like, minutes after this conversation. Like, so we know that these two men despite all of that, still love one another and want that reconciliation, right? And that's what, like, makes this both so tragic to rewatch and yet, you know, like, still offers so much hope because this story gives us that reconciliation in the end. So we have Cole saying, I gave you chance after chance to tell the truth. I gave you this place. That was the first time you called me brother and I loved you for that. And I... Whether it's whether it is this place where they're at or whether it's Cole seeing a Cassie that doesn't know him yet. Right. There's all these like ghosts in this episode that time travel allows you to like confront. And so they are like standing in front of one another in this place. And Cole like it, you know, is like I, I brought us to this place for a reason because it has significance to the two of us. And then Ramsey turns it on him. And when you sit back and you think about this, what we think is the truth about the witness that we will and Cole and Cassie and everyone will struggle with all throughout season three. It is crazy that this is how Cole finds out. Like oh. this is the most absolutely fucked up way that Cole could possibly find out. <laughs> He's standing in front of his brother, who he now knows is in league with Olivia and was lying to him and was going to kill Cassie. And he finds out from Ramsey, not only, like, he didn't even think, he thought he erased that child, right? Like, this Cole thinks that that child, like, that he made that child go away with that sacrifice that he made at the end of season two. So he finds out, my brother betrayed me, he's trying to kill Cassie, wait a second, we we are having a kid? Wait, now our kid is the fucking enemy that I have been fighting since the beginning of this story? It is the most massive mindfuck that when they come back to this and Cole goes, that's bullshit, that's crazy. You're like, fuck yeah, that's what I would say. Like, it's the most insane download of information. And it is like Ramsey's answer, again, with the like layers to it, everything it starts with you, brother, and you think that it's about the witness, and now you rewatch Ugh. it, and you're like, because he's the djinn. <laughs> it's like neither of them know what it means, oh. right? It's got to make sense now, brother, right? Like, oh, and you're sitting. I know this show. Um, like, so that then you have Cole saying, "Why didn't you tell me?" And it gets at that theme of secrets. And Ramsey, you know, we talked about sort of how it's like. There's two truths there, right? Like both mission and trying to protect Cole while you didn't tell him. But then Ramsey says, I didn't think you could handle it. Let me kill her. One life for seven billion. And then you don't get to say that to me. I like how Ramsey in this episode is presenting sacrifice as let me kill someone else. Where in the end, the show is going to make it clear sacrificing someone else's life is just like murder in a shiny wrapping paper. 
sacrificing your own life is sacrifice. So I like that they're setting up very early now by virtue of everything Ramsey says before we know he's future Ramsey. Because, like, literally, I've gone back and looked at the episode. Everything he says up until the death scene is bullshit. It's wrong. It's not narratively supportive. We're supposed to think Ramsey is off the deep end. Everything he says right before dying is what season one Ramsey would say once you know what he knows. And it doesn't seem like it's inappropriate. No, but not only that, he's saying, let me kill this person for you. Exactly. But that in Ramsey's mind, when he's lying in Cole's arms and it's series finale Ramsey. He sacrificed himself. He has sacrificed himself, and he is saying that to a Cole that he knows will ultimately have to sacrifice his existence. Like, right? And so it's the two of them that will bear – Ramsey will be – maybe he'll be reset, right? Like, Ramsey Mm -hmm. knows he'll be reset, but he still has to go back and take three bullets, right? Yep, he still has to go die. Right, and so – these two men that are arguing over who should kill who, really what's happening, the real truth at the end of that scene when Ramsay is dying in his arms is they're, the, they're two men that will take that sacrifice on themselves. Yeah. And, that's, and we'll learn that's what real sacrifice is. Which, by the way, is also why I think Cassie definitely pushed the button. <laughs> so Ramsay shoots Cole. We've got the whole scenario where they're running through the woods. We've already sort of talked about where you should earlier in the podcast, where you should stop and rewatch. The one thing that I think is really important that I don't think is a reach. I think that you see two, you see the first foot go down on the branch. You see the second foot go down on the branch. You see Ramsey then kind of lurking. And then I swear to God, you hear him put the safety on the gun. It's either him breaking a branch on purpose to draw attention or it's the safety and I can't tell which, but it's one of the two. Which Cole tells him to do in the series finale when he's splintering yep. back, right? So we we see what I want to do is I just want to basically Cole shoots him in the back, right? <laughs> two to three times. Cole is Cole dead, so actually right? he shoots him in the he shoots him the first time in the shoulder. And Ramsey clutches his shoulder and kind of smirks a little. And the first time through, I read it as almost this sort of like bleak, like Jesus Christ, you couldn't even manage to kill me when that's what I want. And then we find out through the finale, it is Ramsey smirking because he said to Cole, with my luck, you'll probably miss me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Which is like, the way the acting is perfect on this is... You read into it what you the first time around. It is the same performance, but rewatching Ramsey's death is a different experience, and it is the same goddamn acting. Which is like hats off to Kirk; he's an absolute fucking genius. Right. All right. So the first thing I want to do is take this death scene from Cole's just that final scene. So like from when Ramsey is dying. Let's just take it from Cole's point of view. And then we will take it from Ramsey's point of view, right? Alrighty. Why couldn't you just trust me? I always trusted you. And that, again, is at this. I mean, what is funny is that Jones is going to say that to Cole in masks, right? Like, also, why couldn't you have just trusted me? Yes. They're both lying because Cole has not always trusted Ramsey. He's keeping secrets from Ramsey. I mean, 
He didn't tell, why couldn't you trust me? I always trusted you. He's keeping Ramsey out of the loop about 57 for sensible reasons. I'm not yeah, saying he's like. But I mean, I, I, I guess I, that's true. But I guess. What but I, I think it's that- one of those things of like, it's the absolutes. It's the way they're looking at this in terms of like, I, I, I think he does trust Ramsey. But in terms of like how they're looking at this is sort of like, I always trusted you. Well, no, no, Cole, you're part of your problem now is not being willing to trust people enough. I guess. I, I do think that throughout this series, Cole has been the one. <laughs> oh, overall. Everyone, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, overall, yes. I just mean in the recent past. Just the recent past. So the things that Ramsey says to Cole, you're o- we are always trying to do the right thing. We just end up going about it the right way. For, put aside for a moment what's going on in Ramsey's head. For Cole, this this the the part about this conversation and the journey he's about to go on with who am i am i a good am i a good man am i a bad man is that why my son is a bad man right like so much of the sort of early stages of that have been wrapped up with Ramsey, even going all the way back to like their time in the West Seven or when they were scavenging and they had to torture people or kill people for food. And it, and you think to the conversation they're going to have in season four in Ouroboros about like deeds and who they are. And, and there's so much wrapped up in their relationship that they are both men, both independently and together that are struggling to be good men in a horrible world. And of course, it's a world that is heightened with its stakes, whether it's post-apocalyptic or this mission. But at the end of the day, it's also very relatable. Like, how am I good? How can I be a good person? You know, and and so like those words, even putting aside what Ramsey really means, (laughs) the Ramsey, future Ramsey, who has already seen that they finally go about it the right way. And he's answering that question that Cole asked him at the end of the series. Like, I I still think it matters so much as sort of a signpost for the journey that Cole's going to be on. And when Ramsey says, you're on your own, brother. For Cole, this is a, like, as we were saying before, like, he's now on this journey without his brother. And yes, he's going to get Cassie back at the end of this episode, but this is a new landscape for Cole, right? Like the next episode, he's going to be at a bar with Deacon. Deacon is not his brother. Do you know what I mean? Like he's lost that confidant. I think Jennifer moves in to be, to fill a little, like she's always been somebody that like they have that closeness, but it, you know, it's a big turning point for Cole to lose Ramsey and now have to face this part of his journey on his own and like the acting in that scene of like it makes my like stomach hurt oh <laughs> like, god just yeah the cr- like because it's restrained and there's just this like plaintive guttural screaming at the world right like raging into the void like what the fuck is this that i just had to kill this person to save the woman i love like it's the most fucked up Making Cole choose Cassie over Ramsey and have to kill his brother, it is brutal. And when Cole goes to find Cassie, I mean, yes, it's romantic and it's like, you know, like I have total like shipper feels about it. But like he went from that moment to, and he drove from New Jersey down to Fairfax, Virginia with a bullet wound in his shoulder just to see her face taking his dead brother's advice and he asks, he says, I can't do this alone. 
and I need you to come home. And it's like this prayer out to the universe that is going to be answered, not for any mystical reasons, right? Like it all is explained and it's by Cole and Cassie's own doing, right? And causality loop maintained. But like, it is a moment of Cole, like asking the universe for Cassie to come home. And what she's going to say is I'm home, right? Like it's answering that. But I also love that we have like a male protagonist in a genre show saying, I can't do this alone. You know, like it's, it's a kind of vulnerability that we do not always see in TV. Um, And I am here for it. (laughs) Um, It's it's perfect. It's, I mean, that's one of the thing I think things I think that makes Cole so compelling and sort of takes him above the sort of lone wolf hero archetype is a lot of Cole's journey is learning to be this sort of nobody's the head of this family. And if anything, Jennifer's the heart, but Cole's at the center of this little family. He ends up sort of being the thing that brings them all in and binds them together. And then they find their own relationships and interweave throughout that. But Cole's distinguishing characteristic really is his heart and the connections he makes. And that is not what you get out of a genre hero very often. No, not a male one. Oh, no, 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 no. It has to be a lady. If if they're going to be vulnerable and known for making connections, then God forbid it be a dude. Like the, so it sounds dumb to say I love how much men cry on this show because that's not what I mean. But But I I love love, that they do. I love that they're allowed to cry. I think that's the more appropriate way to put it. They're allowed to be angry. And the woman, the women are allowed to cry and be angry. And that's a Cassie side note. But I love that Cassie is allowed to be just as imperfect as anyone else and not be blamed for it. All right. So let's switch to the Ramsey part of it. Oh, God. (laughs) So the Ramsey that is lying there. Well, the Ram- we already covered the like going back to be shot, but the yeah. Ramsey that is lying there with Cole. We covered the like when they hug it out and when Cole explains it to him. The part I want to pick up on in terms of its relevance to sort of closing what the sort of added layer of meaning to this Ramsey dying scene from Ramsey's perspective is when Ramsey and Cole are talking in the series finale, Ramsey says, You said. I said not to undo this. <laughs> so when Ramsey says, don't undo this, he said that to a Cole that he already knew <laughs> was going to pluck him out. No, right? exactly. It, but- and it's like, he told, it's its its own loop of he told himself, right? It's like, Cole is telling him, right? It's like this future asshole or chicken and egg Jennifer thing, right? But it's like Ramsey's like, okay, wait, so what did I say to you? Because I need to say that again, right? And so when Cole is like, I told him not to undo this, it was like, you made that to a promise, you made that promise to Ramsey who already knew that you would. <laughs> like, it's I was already plucked you out. Beyond the mind fuck of it all, which is yes. truly beautiful, especially in the way of like, how much of this show is about metaphorical cycles, even more than literal time cycles, the sort of like Ramsey, when he's, for example, when he says, you're on your own brother, I, I'm of like a million minds of what that actually means coming from a Ramsey 
who knows that Cole has to go on a journey. And then erase himself. And then erase himself. But also that he has to come to certain conclusions on his own. And Ramsey cannot make those choices for him. Like, Ramsey now knows Olivia is the witness as he's dying. He could use his final dying words to be like, P.S. Olivia's the witness. Go do it. Like, he could give them a leg up one no, might think strategically, but that's what I mean is to preserve it. Yeah. But that's what I mean is there's there's also a lot of faith in that. There is, even though he is a time traveler who is like, this has happened, I'm sure there has to be a human seed of doubt. Like, I have this thing I could tell them. No, I have to trust that this is what it takes. And also that the sacred, I love that, you know, this is my reward getting shot is a hilarious line, but it's also his reward is redemption and he has to get shot to have that redemption because if he's not willing, like that's the thing he's, that's the thing they're doing wrong. That's the right thing they're doing the wrong way. They're trying to make sacrifices, but they think the sacrifices are other people's lives or other people's futures or whatever it is. When right. all along the sacrifice, the only true sacrifice is giving of yourself. But and the other thing is, it's not his reward. <laughs> no, exactly. The reward is is redemption, a new life. Because he's not the Ramsey who sh- who killed all those people in the new world. That's his redemption. Well, but he also gets like time gives him that's his son back, right? Oh yeah, and time gives him his son back and a chance to actually raise his son. Right. I mean, the hilarious thing, too, when you watch this all in a row is the Ramsey who is trying to pull that locked door open to kill Cassie is a few minutes later face to face with Cassie with hi, hi. That <laughs> it's moment. Like, what? It's so great. Yes. In the series finale, when Ramsey's splintering back to this moment where he dies with Cole and Cole tries to, like, say goodbye, right? And, and he says, I don't want to waste my goodbye on you. I want to save it for the one. And Cole asks him, we did the right thing, though, didn't we, in the end? Ramsey answers him when he's dying. And he says, we did it the right way, brother. We always try to do the right thing. We just ended up doing it the wrong way. And he answers Cole and it won't register with Cole until after Ramsey has disappeared from that chair and gone back to that moment. And you kind of see it like pass over Cole's face and they have sort of the snippet of like the sound editing where you hear that moment and we'll see it again in the series finale. And the I'll see you soon. The layers to that Ramsey knows that Cole months from now will see him again. But this Ramsey he knows that Cole is going to be erased and he will never see Cole. And the thing is, even when everything is reset in the epilogue, that Cole is a man and he and, and Ramsey's a boy. Like what, where, Ram, where Cole gets dropped, he and Ramsey are not going to be adults again, right? In the same timeline in the reset. So like that truly is even the redo from like sort of Ramsey's perspective the most tragic I'll see you soon, I think perhaps of the whole show. Oh, it is. Because he he will never see him again, regardless of whether he thinks it's because Cole's going to be erased or because in the reset timeline, they can't possibly. And it like, 
it's heartbreaking and it's unbelievable writing that it hit you in the gut the first time you watched and now it means so much more and it just makes you cry. It's amazing how it manages to be a gut punch on like a million levels. Like I always joke around that like, you know, that there's that internet meme of like in our fandom, we say, we don't say I love you. I always joke that it's in our fandom. We don't say I love you. We say I'll see you soon. And that's beautiful (laughs) to the point where I'm going to get a tattoo that says I'll see you soon. (laughs) Yeah. The way Kirk plays that last scene It feels to me, too, almost like when he's telling Cole, you're on your own, some of, like, it feels that first time like it's a goodbye. It's almost like this sort of, like, you're without me. And it's, I think it functions on two levels. Like, Ramsey knows Cole needs to think that he is dead and gone forever and Cole cannot bring him back. Or Cole won't bring him back when Cassie suggests it at the 11th hour. But I think also there's an aspect where it's he's warning Cole. Because that is, you know, Cole immediately goes to Cassie and says, I can't be alone. And them sharing the secret about Ethan is really what sort of brings them back together and solidifies them as a unit no matter what. So there's a piece that feels like, It's a warning, it's a signpost, it's a goodbye, it's a fake goodbye. Like, it works on so many levels that it just breaks my fucking heart. Yeah, it's it's beautiful writing, beautiful acting. So that, but but that doesn't even get, like, the part that I have probably rewatched 20 (laughs) times, not only for the, like, I love, the moment that Cole splinters back, Oh, and is God. a mad dog. Like has he the the music from that that music that's like those angry strings as he's oh, going yeah. you know he doesn't tell Jones what happened again secrets withholding right he just says he didn't make it he doesn't tell him that he was the one that, that he doesn't tell Jones that he was the one that did it and he marches down that hallway Jennifer's so happy to see him he physically like just pushes Jennifer to the side, storms into that room, fires the lock off and puts the gun to Olivia's head. And Olivia's like, he just had to kill Ramsey. Cassie's still missing. His son is the fucking witness. And Olivia knew it all. Like, I mean, I would probably have a gun oh, to her head too. And she fucking smirkity smirks at him. You're going to need me and your secret is safe with me. And you're just like, fuck. But then... But then the alarm sounds and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, it's happening. Oh my God. And then the music like changes because the music at the, as much as I love that like angry music, the music at the end of this is freaking gorgeous. And you have Deacon come back and everyone is so disappointed. Oh, Deacon. It is like Cole basically is like, oh, and no one says anything. And poor Deacon has been like, fucking doing pull-ups and nursed himself back from the dead to bring Cassie back. But let's just put Deacon aside for the moment. God, it's just so meta. I'm doing like what the characters do. Because then you have like... The friggin' crime. (laughs) Whatever. You know I'm casserole to the grave. You've got the music and the lighting. And like Jennifer said, the machine brings Cassie back. And it is like... The way they, the the setting and the way, like, Cassie, like, stands at the top and, like, 
Cole sees her and the way she comes down and it's like, right? It, it, I feel like every detail is perfect. It's it's not like a huge romantic kiss, right? It's just a hug, like clutching that person and her I'm home. Oh. And it's like answering what he had asked a Cassie that had no idea and had turned her back and had probably never thought about it again, right? Because she never yep. saw him actually splinter away. But the thing that I love, one of my favorite pieces of acting in the whole show is the wordless question from Cole and the nodding in confirmation without words from Cassie. Oh, And then the music starts to sound like you're almost at sea and the camera pulls away and it's just the two of them alone with this news. It is so like, no, it's, it's, it's so... It's so good. It's like this epic reunion that they made us wait. People waited a... Right, we waited a year for oh, yeah. it, and then we had to wait four episodes for it. And it's epic, and yet it also feels disorienting, like, oh my god, he knows, he knows it's true, what the fuck are they gonna do? And it's also, like, it's sort of, it's giving us, it's it's kind of like the Cole and Cassie first sex scene. Where you're getting what you've wanted for so long, but mm-hmm. the way you're getting it is like, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> what are you doing? Because we've wanted Cole and Cassie back on the same page to be a team again. Like all of season two, I spent being like, come on, guys, just forgive each other. Come on, let's do this. So they're finally on the same page. They are so in sync that they don't even need words to communicate some very complex shit. And yet you can't fully like really just be like, yay, the band's back together because there's sort of, it's poison. Like I, I love how sort of Olivia is like poison fruit of a poison tree at this point. Everything that's going on with her, she's like infected our group and sort of is pulling them away from each other. And Cassie and Cole might be back together, but now they're clearly going to be at odds with Jones, with Deacon, you know? Yeah. And now they are in the same way Ramsey was somehow inadvertently fucking aligned with Olivia. Cause like Ramsey didn't seek Olivia out. Olivia came to Ramsey. <laughs> so she's well, yeah. doing the same fucking thing. And she, yeah. she did it to Jennifer first. Yeah. And if everyone in the room smiling, I think it's basically the biggest smile we ever see on Jones's face. Yep. Other than the morning after she banged Dr. Eklund. It's like the biggest smile we've ever seen on her face. And Jones yeah, bagged Ty. That's my girl. Cole and Cassie are sitting there with this in the secret to end all secrets. And it is. Oh, I love the last 20 minutes of this episode. <laughs> thank you so much. This was so fun. Oh, thank you guys no... for letting me make this way too long. No, <laughs> we're always we're always <laughs> nobody else that could have done this episode justice. So thank you so much. Thank you guys um, so much. Yeah. So our next episode, we're going to the eighties. Um, <laughs> Professor Aaron will be back to break down one of the most delightful episodes of TV ever, which frankly, like since we cried so many times on this podcast, I think we all need. Um, So we'll be back um, in a week or two with causality. If you guys have anything else, we'll see you soon.